Christ and of him who is faithful and strong and righteous and merciful and our only gracious King, the only giver of all things, the only just, almighty, and everlasting one, you that deliver us from all our troubles and chose the fathers and sanctified them, receive the sacrifice of our lips for your people Israel, for your name's sake, and let me like sweet incense unto you. O oh, Yah, we have sinned against you, we have rebelled, we have trampled upon your instructions, we have not been faithful to your covenant, yet we have made covenants with the people and lusted after their idols. We have defiled your holy sanctuary, and we have raised up altars to foreign gods. We have worshipped created things and not the creator of all things. We have strayed, we have caused others to go astray. We have not been alike upon the hill, and we have caused your name to be disgraced among the nations. O Yah, you are just in all your ways. Righteousness belongs to you, but to us belongs open shame as it is this day. For many evils and troubles have come upon us, and we are being consumed. They even look at us and wag their heads and make mockery, saying, Where is your Elohim? And indeed, we ask ourselves, is it not because our Elohim is not among us that these evils are not among us? We repent of our transgressions and our sins. We, your servants, bow unto your feet in repentance. We turn away from all our unrighteousness and rebellion. Turn not your face away from us, Allah. Do not destroy us with your righteous anger. Bring your loving kindness from mercy towards your people Israel, for the sake of Yeshua, to the son of your blessed countenance. May his blood atone for all our sins, and cleanse us from all our unrighteousness, and restore us as a people of your grace. Abba Father, gather together those of us who are scattered among the nations, deliver them that serve among the heathen, look with mercy upon them that are despised and are poor. Open their eyes, give their ears to hear. Remove the veil from their minds and grant them a heart of repentance. Oh yeah, we will not execute judgment against those who oppress the people. For we are powerless against this force. Lay your hands on power and might to serve the Lord's hand. Punish those who threaten, oppress, and refine that are denies and harm their children. Send our 
Now let's do, uh, let's read the psalm for today. Psalm for today is Psalm 147. Let's put it on the screen so that you can read along with uh, Claudia and I. Psalm 147 together. Praise Yah, for it is a good thing to sing praises to our Elohim, for it is pleasant. Praise, Praise is fitting. Yahuwah builds up Jerusalem. He gathers the outcasts of Israel. He heals the brokenhearted and binds up their wounds. He appoints the number of the stars. He gives names to all of them. Great is our master and mighty in power. There is no limit to his understanding. Yahuwah lifts up the meek ones. He throws the wrong ones down to the ground. Respond to Yahuwah with thanksgiving. Sing praises on a lyre to our Elohim, who covers the heavens with clouds, who prepares rain for the earth, who makes grass seeds to sprout on the mountains, giving to the beasts its food, to the young ravens that cry. He does not delight in the strength of the horse. He takes no pleasure in the legs of man. Yahuwah takes pleasure in those who fear him, in those who wait for his loving commitment. Extol Yahuwah, O Jerusalem. Praise your Elohim, O Zion. For he has strengthened the bars of your gates. He has blessed your children in your midst. Who makes peace in your borders. He satisfies you with the finest wheat. Who sends out his command to the earth. His word runs very speedily. Who gives snow like wool? He scatters the frost like ashes, throwing out his hay 
like pieces, who does stand before his cold. He sends up his word and melts it. He causes the wind to blow, the waters flow, declaring his word to Yaakov, his laws and right rulings to Israel. He has not done so with any other nation, and they have not known his right rulings. Praise Yah. Praise Yah. Hallelujah. The thing I like about this um, translation here, the scriptures, is that they leave, they leave the name of the name of the Creator. They leave it in the original language, as you can see here. And I really like that much more than how it's done in our um, in our English Bibles. We have substitutes. It's usually Lord, the Lord. In verse 2, for example, where it says here, it clearly says his name, Yahuwah. It's the same name that he used when, uh, in Exodus chapter 3, when um, Moses asked him, what name shall I tell them? It's the same name. He said, my, he says, my name is Yahuwah. This is my name forever. And that, by the way, I believe is the correct pronunciation of the name. Our English Bibles translate the name almost always to the Lord with capital L, capital O, capital R. This is a, this, to me, this is a great injustice that we're doing to the name of our Creator. Because as I said before, um, he told, he told Israel when they come into the land to destroy every evidence of the false gods that were in the land, including erasing their names. But then he said, don't do that to me. And I think that by replacing the name with the Lord or Adonai or Hashem or anything like that, you're erasing his name. This is a great, uh, to me, this is a great sin. And uh, his name needs to be revealed again in the last days. And I think it is being revealed. People's eyes are being opened to the true pronunciation. Others have tried to disguise the pronunciation of the name by putting vowel points around it and, and so that when... You know, knowing that when they tell their people, when you see this word with these vowel points, don't pronounce it as it's written. Say Adonai instead, or say Hashem instead. That was done deliberately to, so that people wouldn't pronounce the name. I've mentioned this before, and I'm going to keep harping on it, because I think this is very important, especially in these end times, where, uh, you know, the, the prophecies of Joel are, are going to be fulfilled. You know, and it says in that day, those who call upon the name of Yahuwah will be saved. You have to call on, it on his name, not on Baal or the Lord. There is no salvation in that name. Okay, I've said... What version is that? This is uh, the scriptures, see the TS here? The scriptures 2009. And you can get it on the U version, the U version um, Bible app. Can you get it on, on Bible Gateway? Yeah. I don't think so. Okay. I don't think so. But you one can find U version on um, online. I know you. Yeah. I know there's a no. You have to have an app. Yeah, it's an app. You can download it as an app. Um, so I forgot to mention that. Even in the ancient writings, like if you look in the Dead Sea Scrolls, um, including when it's when uh, 
their copies of the Septuagint, the Greek version of, of the Hebrew. It, but even in the Hebrew version of the Hebrew, then they leave the name in the original Paleo-Hebrew. The original Paleo-Hebrew. So, you know, we say, we say, Yod-Heh-Vav-Heh. They say, it says the same thing. Well, they say, Yod-Heh-Wah-Heh. The original Paleo says, Wah. Yod-Heh-Wah-Heh. And they leave it in the original Paleo-Hebrew form. Even from the Dead Sea Scrolls. You'll be reading the Hebrew, and then you'll see this Paleo-Hebrew for those four letters only. So it's, so it's, what are they trying to do? Preserve the name. Don't change it. Don't, don't erase it. People knew it. People knew the name, you know. They have Bible days. They call on the name all the time. Anyway, um, let's move on, shall we? So we're going to do uh, some reading now from the Torah portion. And this week's Torah portion is Tetzel. Uh, when you go out. And uh, I'll do the summary and then we'll do some reading for it. Okay? So the Torah portion begins with Moses giving instructions to the men of Israel on how to treat women taken as prisoners of war. If an Israelite saw among the captives of war a woman he desired to take as his wife, then he was to take her into his home and have her perform certain purification rituals and then allow her to mourn, mourn the loss of her parents for a full month. Then he may go and take her for his wife. If the man changes his mind for any reason, he's to let her go free, but he's forbidden to sell her or to mistreat her in any way. Then Moses lays down some instructions for how fathers were to treat the sons of two wives, one loved and the other unloved. His firstborn son was to inherit the double portion of all that he has, regardless of which one of the wives for the first one, the loved wife or the unloved one. Then follows the procedure for dealing with a stubborn and rebellious son who refuses to obey his parents. The parents were to bring the rebellious son before the elders and bring their charge against their son. Then the men of the city were to execute the rebellious son by stoning, thus removing evil from their midst. Then follows an instructions to bury a corpse hanging on a tree before the end of day in order not to defile the land. Chapter 22 begins with instructions to treat and care, sorry, treat with care and concern any lost property belonging to an Israelite and help them regain possession of it. This is followed by several do's and don'ts. For example, a woman is not to wear a man's clothing and vice versa. It's an abomination to Yah. A mother bird was not to be taken together with its young. It must first be set free. There's a prohibition on mixing certain things, like sowing two different kinds of seed among grapevines, or plowing with an ox and a donkey yoked together, or wearing clothes made of wool and linen. To these were added the instructions to wear tassels on the corners of the outer garden. Then Moses presents several laws dealing with the chastity, sorry, dealing with chastity and marriage. If the chastity of a young woman upon entering into marriage is falsely called into question by her husband, who maliciously claimed that his wife was not a virgin when he married her, then the girl's parents were to bring the matter before the elders of the town and present the evidence of the young woman's fidelity. Then the elders were to punish the man, he was to pay a 
confined to the father of the young wife, and he was forbidden from divorcing her all, her, all his days. But if the husband's accusations were true, then the wife was to be stoned to death. If a man is found sleeping with a married woman, they were both to be put to death. This also applied to a man who lay with a betrothed virgin in a town. On the other hand, if a man forced himself on a betrothed woman in the field, the man alone was to die. A man who seizes a virgin and lays with her, and the matter is later found out, is to pay the girl's father a fine and marry the girl without ever being able to divorce her. In chapter 32, Moses gives instructions excluding certain persons from the assembly of Yah and allowing others into the assembly. So, for example, an Amorite or a Moabite could not enter the assembly, but the third generation of Edomites and Egyptians may do so. Moses also deals with preserving the purity of the camp in time of war. So that meant that a man who had become unclean because of a nightly mission must go outside the camp and remain there until he had purified himself. Also, the camp was not to be defiled with the dirt of human excrement. Moses also gave instructions allowing foreign slaves to live in the land and the removal of certain immoral persons out of it. Lastly, he laid out certain duties of citizenship, like not taking interest for anything lent to a countryman, only a stranger, and fulfilling one's vows to Yah without delay. Chapter 24 begins with two laws concerning the relation of a man and his wife. The first one specifies that in the event of a divorce, a reunion with the divorced wife is forbidden if she had married another man, even though the second husband had also divorced her or had died. In such a case, the divorced woman's marriage to her second husband defiled her. Remarrying her would be an abomination and bring sin on the land. In the second case, a newly married man was not required to perform military service or any public duties for a whole year so that he would be free to make his new wife happy. Then follows prohibition against taking as collateral a debtor's very means of sustenance, a warning to diligently heed the teachings of the priests so as not to sin and be punished with leprosy. An instruction to a lender not to go into a borrower's house to take his pledge, to take his collateral, but let the borrower bring the collateral out. And if the borrower is poor, he's to return his collateral to him at sunset. There's a warning not to oppress the poor and needy servant by withholding his daily wages. Fathers were not to die with their sons because of their son's sins, nor were sons to be put to death along with their fathers because of their father's sins. In other words, they were not to suffer the punishment of death with them for crimes in which they had no share. And finally, directions to allow strangers, widows, and orphans to glean in time of harvest. The last chapter, chapter 25, starts with the instruction that the number of strokes that can be meted out in corporal punish punishment must be proportional to the offense, but could not exceed 40. Then the custom of liberate marriage was established, whereby if brothers live together and one of them dies childless, his widow was not to marry outside the family, but her brother-in-law was to marry her in order that the first child she then bears will succeed to the name of the deceased brother. If he refused to marry his brother's widow, 
and she was to take her case to the elders. And if the brother-in-law still persisted in his, refu in his refusal, she was to take his shoe off his foot and spit in his face with the words, this is what is done to the man who refuses to build up his family. The Torah portion ends with a reminder of what Amalek did to Israel when they were coming out of Egypt, how without fear of Elohim they attacked those at the rare, the tired, and the weary. As a consequence of this, when Yah should have given rest to Israel in the land of promise, they were not to forget to root out the remembrance of Amalek from under heaven. That's the summary. And so now let's say the blessing prior to reading the Torah. Like this. Barhu et Yahuwah Hamegorah Baruch Yahuwah Hamegorah Leolam Vayet Baruch Ata Yahuwah Eloheinu Melech HaOlam Asher Bacharbanu Mikol Amin Venatan Lanu Et Torato Baruch Ata Yahuwah Noten HaTorah Amen And we said, Bless Yahuwah who is blessed Bless Yahuwah, who is blessed forever and ever. Blessed are you, Yah, our enemy, King of the universe, who has chosen us from among all the peoples and gave us his Torah. Blessed are you, Yahuwah, giver of the Torah. Amen. Okay, the first reading, uh, Herman's going to do the first reading for us, starting in Deuteronomy chapter 21, from uh, verse 10 to verse 21. So that's Deuteronomy chapter 21, verse 10 to verse 21. Sabbath blessing. Shabbat shalom. Deuteronomy chapter 21, verse 10. The law of marriage. When you go out to war against your enemies, and Yah your Adonai delivers them into your hand, and you take them captive, and you see among the captives a beautiful woman and desire her and would take her for your wife. Then you shall bring her home to your house and she shall shave her head and trim her nails. She shall put off the clothes of her captivity, remain in your house and mourn her father and mother for a full month. After that, you may go into her and be her husband, and she shall be your wife. And if it shall be, if you have no delight in her, then you shall set her free. But you certainly shall not sell her for money. You shall not treat her brutally because you have humbled her. If a man has two wives and one of the other unloved, and they have borne him children, both the loved and the unloved, and if the firstborn son is of her who is unloved, then it shall be on that day 
he bequest his possessions to his sons, that he must not bestow firstborn status on the son of the loved wife in preference of the son of the unloved, but is truly who is truly the firstborn. But he shall acknowledge the son of the unloved wife as the firstborn by giving him a double portion of all that he has, for he is the beginning of his strength. The right of firstborn status is his. The law of rebellious son. If a man has a stubborn and rebellious son who will not obey the voice of his father or the voice of his mother, and who, when they have chastened him, will not heed them, then his father and his mother shall take hold of him and bring him out to the elders of the city, to the gates of his city. And they shall say to the elders of the city, This son of ours is stubborn and rebellious. He will not obey our voice. He is a glutton and a drunkard. 21. Then all the men of the city shall stone to death with stone. So he shall put away the evil person from among you. And all Israel shall hear and fear. Here ended the reading. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Herman. The second reading is from uh, Isaiah chapter 54, verse 1 to verse 10. Sharon's going to read for us. It's Isaiah. And it's a good thing, too, because here she comes back in the room. Yeah, so once again, uh, that's Isaiah chapter 54, verse 1 to verse 10. As I said, Sharon's going to read for us. I'm stalling, Sharon, because I see you just came back in. Uh, Isaiah chapter 54, verse 1 to verse 10. Whenever you're ready, Sharon. Yeah, I've been here. I've been here the whole time. I'm in my car because I'm at a funeral. Oh, so okay. I, Yeah, so can you hear me correctly? I'm going over my car speaker. I can hear you plainly. Wonderful. So, um, Sabbat uh, uh, Shalom, everyone. Sabbat Shalom. Okay, this reading is called The Future of Prosperity. Sing, O barren, thou that didst not bear. Break forth into singing and cry aloud, thou that didst not travail with child. For more are the children of the desolate than the children of the married wife, said the Lord. Enlarge the place of thy tent, and let them stretch forth the curtains of thine habitation. Spare not, lengthen thy cord, and strengthen thy stakes. For you shall break forth on the right hand and on the left, and thy seed shall inherit the Gentiles and make the desolate cities to be inhabited. Fear not, for thou shalt not be ashamed, neither be thou confounded, for thou shalt not be put to shame, for thou shalt forget the shame of thy youth, and shalt not remember the reproach of thy widowhood anymore. For thy baker is thine husband, the Lord of hosts is, thine, is his name, and thy Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel. The God of the whole earth shall be, he be called. 
For the Lord has called thee as a woman forsaken and grieved in spirit and a wife of you. When thou was confused, said thy God. Sorry, let me say that again. For the Lord has called thee as a woman forsaken and grieved in spirit and a wife of you. When thou was refused, said thy God, for a small moment have I forsaken thee, but with great mercy will I gather thee. End of reading. Praise be to the most high. Amen. 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 Thank you, Sharon. Thank you. Okay, the final reading is from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 19, starting at verse 3 and ending at verse 12. Claudia is going to read for us. That's Matthew chapter 19, verse 3 to verse 12. Shabbat shalom, everyone. Shabbat shalom. And some Pharisees came to him, testing him, and saying, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any cause at all? And he answered and said, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And said, For this cause a man shall leave his father and mother, and shall cleave to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Consequently, they are no more two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. They said to him, Why then did Moses command to give her a certificate and divorce her? He said to them, because of your hardness of heart, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning it has not been this way. And I say to you, whoever divorced his wife, except for immorality, and marries another, commits adultery. The disciples said to him, If the relationship of the man with his wife is like this, it is, it is, it is better not to marry. But he said to them, not, at all, not all men can accept this statement, but only those to whom it has been given. For there are eunuchs who were born that, that way from their mother's womb, and there are eunuchs who were made eunuchs by men, and there are also eunuchs who made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. He who is able to accept this, let him accept it. Amen. Amen. Okay, let's say the blessing after reading the Torah like this. Baruch Atah Yahweh, Eloheinu Melech HaOlam, Asher Natalano Torah Emet, Vechaye Olam Nata Batochenu, Baruch Atah Yahweh, Noten HaTorah, Amen. And we said, Blessed are you, Yahweh Elohim. King of the universe, who has given us the Torah of truth and implanted eternal life within us. Blessed are you, Yahuwah, giver of the Torah. Amen. Okay, let's say hello to some folks. Maria, Yahuwah here. So since we started, just let me say hello to, I don't know if I said hello to Joanna. So hello again, Joanna, hello, Shabbat Shalom, Linda, and Everall, and Shelly, and Yusili, and Shalom, and Jay, 
when, when you read that, right? He's so concerned. Um, you know, it's a balancing act, right? You know, man has a right to exactly, eat, but at the same time, you know, it must be balanced with the the need of the need of life itself in these in the creatures that he's he's given us to have dominion over, right? We must yes. be responsible stewards with exactly what he's given us. Yeah, we yeah. can't be I reckless. We can't be careless. We can't be only thinking of ourselves. We have to think of his whole creation. Right. I think that's the sense that. Yes, and you see that in the <clears throat> in the epistles, right? When Paul, even as we deal with each other, he's like, you know, you might have certain freedoms in terms of how you practice your faith, but don't let that freedom yeah. be an obstacle to a weaker brother. Yeah. Your love for your brother should transcend your freedom, and you should be willing to give up your yeah. freedom yeah. to protect that brother's faith, you know? Yeah, it's a sign of maturity in the faith, right? Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. yeah. Beautiful. Mm -hmm. Thanks, Shelly. Uh, anyone else? Any other comments? Okay. Yeah, Herman? Yeah. Yes. I'd just like to make a couple of comments. As we read into verse 13, it's, it's noted that... Um, even though the woman is a captive, a part of this point, if you take her as a man to have her as your wife, you have to, um, there are certain requirements that she has to shave her head, cut her nails, and then you must allow her to mourn her parents for a full month. It, it also says that um, if she does not please you, and you want to get rid of her, you, you cannot brutalize her. You you must treat her with respect because um, what you have done to her has humbled her. And as we, as we go into verse 15, we talk about the two wives, and um, we see this reminds me of Jake, of Jacob, Rachel yeah. and Mary. And then as you move further down, you see in the, um, the end of 16, the, the son, it's not the son that you preferred, but this is the son of the firstborn, regardless if it is from the one you love or the one that is in love. And we see this relating to Abraham when he wanted to give the firstborn rights to Ishmael. But the key in that one is that Ishmael was not the son of promise. He was more or less the son of unbelief that Yah would have given them a son and even at that old age. And um, in verse 21, where the parents were able to take their son to the gate and uh, express their disappointment and the elders would stone them. And, and this brings me back to the commandment that regardless of how mature we are in age, we must remember at all times to honor our mothers and fathers. Okay, I'll leave it at that. Thank you. Thank you, Herman. Thank you. That's a good way to wind it up, right? Good way to wind it up. 
Um, it is, it's been said that this punishment of the rebellious son was never actually executed in Israel. I don't know whether that's true or not, but there's the instructions anyway. Perhaps just the instructions for dealing that with, uh, with the rebellious son is enough to spur parents on to raise their children with fear of Yah, and so that they would never even have to go there, or certainly for sons or children in general, I guess. Knowing these instructions, that would be a great deterrent, wouldn't it? Yeah. <laughs> wouldn't it? That's very brutal. It, it is very brutal, so you don't want to go there, right? You never want to go there. And, and I think if, if cases were brought like this before the Sanhedrin to judge, they would go to extra lengths to reconcile the parties, right? Before bringing that kind of judgment on. But why not just discipline a child? Like, you know, give him a spanking 30 lashes or something like well, that? Well, the, the, It's so extreme. I think the intent here is that the parents have tried all that, but he, he has continued in persisting and refusing to, you know, submit to them. So, you know, when, when you reach the end of your rope with your rebellious son, this is what you do. And as I said, I don't think it's actually ever happened to, to go that far, but, um, but there it is. Herman, I like what you said about the, like, in, is about two or three or more places in this Torah portion. It deals about the relationship between a man and his wife. And you may, you know, the first one there that we looked at where he says, oh, uh, yeah, I, this yeah. captain that he found in war, and he, you know, brought her into his home, kept her for a month, went into her, and then he says, ah, I changed my mind. Here, he's married her, by the way, so she's now his wife, right? So he's got to give her, we read it later on, a, a, a paper, a bill of divorce. And remember what we read later on? Um, or we will read, or we have read later on. When you've given uh, your wife a bill, of, and a bill of divorce and sent her away, technically, in the eyes of Yah, she's still married to you. So, if another man marries her, that defiles her in Yah's eyes. She's basically like, it's like adultery. Yeah. And then you couldn't remarry her again. So if you were hasty in your decision to either take her as a wife or get rid of her afterwards, this would be like a check. Wait a minute. Before I send this woman away, you know, I got to remember two things. I'm creating a situation where she could become defiled if some other man takes her. Or if I, in the future, I want to take her back, I'm forbidden from doing so. Right? I'm forbidden from doing so, so I better think carefully before I act. It sort of, I think it was like a check on this frivolous divorce business, I think. It worked that way. And uh, it protected the woman too, but it also showed me something that didn't quite, I didn't quite see before. A married woman, you know, even a, a divorced woman, I should say, is, um, she cannot, technically in the eyes of Yah, cannot marry again until her husband dies. Until he dies, she's still his wife. That's how Yah sees it. And if anyone marries her, not only is, does that defile her, and it's, it's not the kind of defilement that you can just wash your clothes and mix her and be clean at evening. No, no, no. This was a deep moral stain on the soul. And that defilement remained there. And anyone who married uh, a divorced uh, uh, woman, 
So a lot of things that I didn't quite see there, you know. Husbands, be careful. Don't divorce your wife. Stay with your wife. <laughs> wives, don't divorce your wives. Don't divorce your husbands. You're setting yourself up for defilement. Yah hates defilement. And Yeshua picks up on this, on this, on this reading too, right? He picks up on this reading too, and he says, um, "You have heard that it has been said, you shall give your wife a bill of divorce." This is what we just read in Deuteronomy. But I say unto you, except it be for fornication, he who puts his wife away causes her to commit adultery or something like that. I can't remember the exact words, but I'm sure you guys know what I'm speaking about. He relates the putting away of the of the wife to adultery, like setting her up for adultery. So this this is a very very important thing. I'm gonna shut up because I saw some hands and then the hands went away. Uh, if I may, yeah. As you mentioned that um, there's another scripture which which states that um, until either party remarries then their living together would be an adulterous life, life on both sides. So yeah. until a man marries, then the woman can't marry, or until a woman marries, then the male can't marry. So they would have to have some understanding there when they're going to do what appears. Thank you. Yeah, I'm not sure. I'm not sure if I got what you were saying there. Why? Right? Um... No, I, I was saying that there, there's another scripture that says um, both individuals have to be married to get out of the adulterous sins after divorce. No, no. Yes, there is a that's scripture not, that, like that. Yeah, no, I, I'd like you to find that already. Yeah, I'll, I'll follow I don't think that's the yeah. case, yeah. I don't think that's the case. It, it's only death that separates, right? It's only death that separates from, from the marriage. And and uh, even though Yeshua said, uh, accepted be for fornication, he was not endorsing by any means. He said, I think he was saying the only legitimate reason for giving a, a bill of divorce is for fornication. But even then, if she remarries, then, uh, then she becomes a defiled woman. Uh, Linda. I'm sorry, you. I had to. I had to leave shortly <clears throat> because I, my daughter called me from Calgary. She fell down and she had a severe accident, so she called me. Oh. Mm. Sorry. I really that. wanted to share this. Uh, this. Uh, tr this reading. <clears throat> She's broken her leg, so I've written it in the chat. So we lift up oh, and pray. Yeah. <clears throat> But I really wanted to share this uh, this uh, this uh, Parsha reading, and especially on this divorce issue, because this was something that, and I'm taking this very personally, because as a divorced woman myself, I never asked for a divorce, but I was divorced because it was the easiest way out. But the question here is that my children never really understood the reason why there was never a man that was allowed into my house and neither did I have any um, uh, affair with any man or you know, get involved. This was the principle they never understood because I read it in the scriptures and God says that if you are divorced 
or you some you are put away uh, as you, as as the scripture says by your husband you you are still the person's wife until death do you part so even in the even in the when we take uh, get married in in church i never had children outside wedlock they were all born within wedlock so i think that was the blessing that was over my home and so the the fact is that when you take your vow on matrimony and say still death do you apart you are to take care of this person till death do you apart i don't think many couples really take that vow very seriously you know and uh, and it becomes like a, almost like a uh, what should i say like a fashion a fashion statement is just like uh, when you, just as you change your clothes or you change a pair of shoes you think you can change your wife <laughs> in the same way it's almost like a fashion statement and uh, and straight as uh, sadly enough the our society today has gone gone so uh, downhill so depraved and i'm i'm not going to hesitate to use this word depravity because it has fallen into such depravity because the very vows that has has brought man together when god when god says no one is to come between this relationship <clears throat> so when uh, when when people uh, come in to tempt whether it's a man or in the case of the man if it's another woman or if in the case of a woman it's another man temptation comes in and adultery is uh, uh, is uh, uh, caused or uh, indulged in i would rather say <clears throat> then uh, you see that, that that's the defilement that comes in and even though uh, this this kind of a uh, defilement maybe or this kind of an act maybe hidden from either of the partner but the sad thing is that the retribution of that starts on the children even though the, the 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 parents may not notice it but you will see that the cause of that act you will immediately start seeing it the retribution falling on the ch- children and i've seen this because it became an evidence to me in in the case of my own family like it was an evidence and and later as i started maturing in my walk with the lord the lord started pointing out scriptures and saying this is where the cause of this is coming from this is what the cause of this is coming from and it was all defilement and it took many years for my ex-husband to be able to actually own up and say yes this why i said you didn't even have to tell me because i can see the effect of it on the children so it is a very and you see in our society the depravity has started from the destruction of the family satan has worked very hard to destroy the family the family first then the children and then when they go into society they become very what should i say fashionable and broad minded and then they start indulging and or experimenting in even more vile things it is all coming as a foundation of the breakdown of the nucleus family it's a very very serious dangerous thing 
And I really thank God. I really thank God. I can stand on my feet and I lift my hands up. Sometimes, you know, I, I, I lift my hands up and I say, Lord, thank you that you're my covering, you're my husband, you're everything. Just keep me like that, you know, till the day you call me home or you come home, whichever it is. So I wanted to share that, especially for our younger generation. And I know many of our uh, members in this uh, in our group have children and have grandchildren. And, uh, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a foundation that is very important to be laid. And it was a foundation I laid in the life of my children. And it became, uh, 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 um, what should I say, a warning to them, a warning. And now they are doing the same with their children, these foundations. Why? Because they were able to see it in my life. And I stand on this till today. Till today, I stand on this. I said, this house will never, wherever I live, it will never be defiled. Nothing will ever be destroyed. Because as long as God's presence is in this house, I'm not going to throw, kick him out. I would rather kick the person. The, the person in, ma in matter out. Now, you know, when I see matter, uh, ma when you see somebody physically, you're looking at matter. But the matter, beyond the matter, the spiritual content is even greater. And I'll stop there, but I wanted yeah. to share that with you. Thank you, Linda. Thank you, Linda. That, like what you said there with respect to what's happening to the family, is you're so right on target. And that, as you said, Satan's been attacking the family and more so in the last you know the last few years decades if you will or maybe go back 50 years or more to break down the family the family unit is the foundation of civilization why because that's the first thing Yah set up a man and his wife and he said go go forth and multiply and fill the earth and they did as families that was the foundation of Yah's creation that's right <laughs> but uh but as you said that family unit now has come under great attack and it's it's satanic it's demonic at its core right it's executed by men and women but its core is satanic and we That's see the results we see the results around us today you know you're so right you, you see the devastation we see the depravity leading even to more depravity as the, as the new generation right right like mm -hmm. Who needs to know about your pronouns these days? Like it's so, you know, and the whole issue of marriage, the whole issue of marriage. Yah says the man and uh, his wife, man and his woman. Now it's all, hey, it's anything goes. It's all to destroy the family unit, to make it null and void. It's an attack on the creation of God. It's That's demonic. Right. It's demonic. And we need... So here's what we need to do, because we, because we as a, a group, there's enough people that believe like you and I, Linda, and everybody else in the group, teach it to our children. That's right. Teach it to your children, teach it to your grandchildren, pass it on, leave that legacy so that there will always be this witness in the earth to all the crazy stuff that's going on out there, right? And we, as, as believers, as followers of the Messiah, as the body of Messiah, we gotta live that holy life. We can't compromise on this stuff. We need to call it out when we see it. Call it out boldly, right? Especially if it's in the house. Especially if it's in our community. We need to call it out. 
Paul said, so call it out, you know, talk to your brother one-on-one, you know, if you see any kind of depravity in the house, we need to speak against it and reconcile that person. And if he's not reconcilable, then we need to, you know, excommunicate him, kick him out of the community, cut him off. We're not to tolerate. But, you know, we do everything in love. The whole purpose is to draw people back into the kingdom. Right, but um, yeah, spirit guide us as we go about that. Thank you, Linda. Beautiful, a lot of thoughts there. Rochelle and then Herman. Shabbat shalom, mashpocha. This is a this has always been an interesting topic for me, um, and very confusing because sometimes I go like it's I go back and forth. Ah. So if, and thanks Shelley for pointing out Mark 10, I read it. So if I understand correctly, and, and that has always been my understanding, is that uh, divorce was never the intent, was never in uh, Abba's uh, plan, perfect plan, right? He, he hates it, he said it, he hates it, but like as, as you know, as, um, as Shelley pointed out uh, in the scriptures in Mark 10, Yeshua says it clearly that it is because of the harshness of man's heart. Yah allowed this, right? He allowed this, right? And that was very clearly. However, Yeshua says clearly again, and then picked up by Paul and Romans, and I think that's what Roman was, was referring to when he was talking about the scripture and some other places in Corinthians. But it says, you know, if you divorce, so yeah, you can divorce, but if you do so, know that, you, you know, if you marry another person, another woman, you're committing adultery, and then, and vice versa, if a woman divorces her husband, and then she marries another man, uh, that's, that's adultery, right? And then again, like Linda said, unless one of the parties, uh, Dies, that's when you are allowed to, to, uh, to remarry. So I'm like, okay. So this has always been the status quo, right? We, we've known this, and unfortunately, you know, we, I, I don't know. Like, I, I take this very personally because because of this, I, you know, I, um, I have not been married because I met somebody and, um, uh, at that time, he was separated. Later on, he divorced his wife. But you know, I felt convicted, and I was like, mm, you know, this is this is something that really I should not be doing. And and I wasn't married, so it wasn't as if I was, or so I thought. But then after a while, I was like, oh my gosh, you know, like after many many years, here I am. I'm still not married. I'm like. Hmm, you know, did I do the right thing? Did I hear, um, did I hear the, the spirit right? Uh, and then I'm like, ah, it's so confusing. And I, and I wish, you know, I wish we had a, a, a straight answer because when I look at society, whether it's in the church or outside, um, people divorce and to remember Amalek and to remember what Amalek did, you know, and Amalek is, is also one of the, uh, one of the uh, nations that were now.
And then actually this parasha ends by saying, you know, um, uh, where is that? Or maybe it's in Exodus 17. Um, but yeah, the, the, the word remember is the same, apparently, the same word that is used as in remember to keep Shabbat holy, remember to keep uh, the Passover, remember. And I'm like, wow, you know, he definitely does not want us to, to forget that. I don't, you know, I, I wasn't clear on what application that could be.
She had a baby in her arms when we put him in the grave. And I will tell you, she lived until she was 100 years old. And she never had a serious relationship with a man since the day my father died. She never even had anybody you can remotely call a boyfriend. She lived a celibate life. I like marvel. How could you do that, Mom? And you know, it would have been so easy for her, right? I got four kids, you know, I need, you know? Nope. Nope, nope, nope. She didn't do it. I don't know why. I don't know, you know, I've often asked her, like, Mom, why? But I couldn't get an answer that really, you know, the answer was kind of evasive or whatever. But she did it. So why am I saying this? My mother is just like any other woman who loves the Lord and wants to obey everything that he says. So maybe this was a little bit extreme extreme for her because her husband died. She could have yeah. wanted to, right? But she didn't. She chose not to. It was her choice. And, and I believe... If you were to ask me, I believe that she didn't want anything to interfere with the relationship that she was building with her God. And she knew that her husband would do that, having to look after her husband and whatever, whatever, you know. She didn't want that kind of interference. There are other women like that. She's not, my mom's not special in that regard. There are many other women like that in the world. And it's like, you know, it's like, it's like you said, some are called. That would be my answer. I don't know if that would help you or not. I'll let uh, Herman go. Maybe he can add something to that. Uh, first of all, I want to commend Rush out for speaking, speaking out. Uh, it's the truth. It's her heart. And um, yes, uh, I agree with her when one can say there's no clarity in it. Because when you look uh, at the scriptures and they talk about all these righteous men and the patriarchs, how many relationships they had. Look at Jacob who was chosen to become Israel, you know. And um, as we talk about the, the instructions and we talk about Asatan or Satan coming in to destroy, I, I, I truly lay this um, misinformation or disinformation that the churches, the so-called churches, yours, because they're the one who have refused to go back to the Old Testament. They said it's done away with. So we are having serious problem with our young people. Not, not saying that our young people wouldn't go the way they choose to go, but at least they would have had the instruction. There are many people growing up today have not heard these instructions in, in the Torah. Then again, I come back to Israel and the, um, the various rabbis they have. Why are they still hiding the scriptures for us? Because there has to be clarity. There has to be more clarity when you can look at the, the, um, the patriarchs and all these righteous men, how many relationships they have, if you know. But I'll leave it at that. Okay, thanks, Herman. Thought-provoking. Uh, Joanna? Hi, Rachel. Hi, Rachel. Hi, Joanna. I can tell you that uh, I uh, 
think it was probably three o'clock in the morning when I was praying for you specifically concerning this. And I think I sent you a message. I wrote a few things down because I didn't want to forget. Hopefully I won't quiet. Um, uh, I will. Rachel, I prayed for you this morning and my heart ached for you. I say, remember Abraham and Sarah of the impatience that brought in Agar and Ishmael. Was it in the will of God or was it not in the will of God? And uh, I want to share with you a little bit of my life. When my husband left me, I had received permission from church leaders to divorce my husband. And trust me, I cry before God. I don't know how many leaders said to me, you have permission because he left you and he had his own life. And it's okay. I went to court, I think at least four times and fill out the papers and I never was able to get a divorce. The last time I went, COVID happened and everything was shut down and I was not able to do it. So the question I think you have to ask yourself when the desire comes, it says, Abba, is it your will? Like you were saying, this teaching, some can do it, some cannot do it. So if the desire is in you to get married, God will send you the right husband. And while the right husband is not here now, when Joseph received the dream, he was in the pit for a while, then he went to Potiphar's house, then Potiphar's wife betrayed him, then he went to the prison. So you're going through several steps and several places. That does not mean that the dream will not come to pass. And then the one day when Pharaoh called him, what happened? The house he was supposed to receive, the palace, he was there. The wife, he could have gone and court somebody. He received one right away. The garment that he was supposed to receive, he got it right there. The position that he was supposed to occupy, he got it right away in one day. So whatever you're supposed to receive, at the right time, you will get it. Just stay in the will of God. Don't go out of the will of God because I've tried. But I thank God that he has kept me. Even though I tried, trust me, I tried. I prayed, I cried, I pushed. But I thank God that he has kept me. And I did not go out of his will. So that is my plea to you. Pray, and I will continue to pray with you. I think Shelly sent enough messages in the chat to confirm what the word of God is saying. Do not go out of his will. What Yeshua is saying is that when one said do this, it's adultery. And God do not like this. Sometimes, yes, it is hurtful. It hurt us. And as a human being, we cannot tolerate those things. We can't. We can't carry. We can't. Um, it's not something that we can't carry. But with God, all things are possible. It's not something that you can do on your own. But I pray the grace of God to carry you. We are all here. May we take on this with you, that you don't feel that you're carrying this on your own. That we remember you every day in prayer to carry this with you. 
don't give up. That you stay in the will of God and on that day, just as when Joseph received that call from Pharaoh and his family was able to be saved. When Jacob came, when the brothers came and he was able to save his family, you never know, you might be the one to save your family because you have waited and the will of God. That's all I have to say. Thank you, Joanna. Thank you, Joanna. And I got to say a big amen to that. A big amen to that. A big amen to that. Amen. That's very encouraging. Thank you so much, Joanna. And, and uh, you know, Claudia and I, we already pray regularly for you, as you know, Rochelle. And I just want you to know that we will continue doing so for you. Uh, just as Joanna said that you remain in this will. Um, Linda? May I just add a, um, a comment or two, um, Diva? Yes. <clears throat> oh, Rochelle, uh, I'll be praying for you. I never knew your, uh, never knew your, your battle, but I'm going to be praying for you because you know what? You will be able to, I'm not, and I'm not saying you may, I am saying you will. I'm being very emphatic. You will be able to overcome your desire. Your desire is, oh, I don't want to turn old single. Uh, and, you know, look at me here now. I'm with a divorced man. You know God's word. You know his, his law and you know what his, his wish is for those of us who say we are <clears throat> called apart, set apart for him. We're not set apart in just one or two things. We're set apart as a whole. The wholeness of you, the completion, the completeness of you you as an individual, you as a, and it's not just your physical, uh, your physical body that's the matter, but beyond that is the spirit, the spiritual part of you is what God is really, really, really wanting to set apart. <clears throat> now, responding to jo Joanna and uh, talking about Sarah and, strange, uh, and Abraham, strangely enough, <clears throat> this was my uh, devotions for this week uh, from the from the book of Genesis and uh, you see when uh, when um, all this problem that came along that joined Abraham and when I was listening to the teachings of uh, Chuck Missler he says that we think that Abraham was a man that was majorly outstanding he was this he was that he was fantastic and he was he was just uh, extraordinary no it's not so abraham was messed up right from the time he was removed from kahin he he came out of chaldea but he never did what god asked him to do he says set yourself apart he didn't he took lot along with him he took his father along with him <clears throat> went up to haran and parked himself there for a couple of years how long we don't know 
and then he thought he had and then uh, it was only after his father died that he was able to move again so his journey was from Haran to Moriah where he sacrificed Isaac and by that time he had he was completely undone he had given up everything in him that was coming up to resist the setting apart the setting apart the setting apart even him going to Egypt along the way he picked up Hagar was that in God's plan but Hagar was to had a destiny to fulfill too when she conceived for 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 um Abraham she didn't conceive because you know uh, uh Abraham committed adultery no it's because Sarah said you know maybe she can provide uh, us with a with a son so she the bible clearly says that she gave abraham hagar as a wife as a wife this bible clearly says that but then when she runs away from hagar from sarah after sarah finds out that she was pregnant and she started despising her mistress she runs away into the desert and at the spring at the spring that's the that's the key word there at the spring at the well of water the lord meets her the lord always comes to meet you at a well at a spring at a point in your life where you are really questioning i think she was the first woman at the well hagar was the first woman at the well jesus god himself the word becoming flesh then met the woman at samaria the second woman at the well the message was the same he says where are you running to you at that very moment hagar's commission as being abraham's wife was completely dissolved he says go back to your mistress he didn't say say oh abraham's wife go back no he says go back to your mistress sarah says i'll you know take her as your wife but god says go back to your mistress and you know when um when isaac was born it was 13 years later it was a test time you know uh, um rachel we are living in time we are time bound god knows our destiny already he knows already what decision we are going to make but you know when he has set you apart satan can come along with whatever temptation desire of your flesh because these are the three sins there's nothing more than these three sins the sin of the flesh the lust of the eyes and the pride of life these are the three sins he doesn't have a whole uh, phd or oh let me tempt, tempt her with this sin or let me tempt him with that sin no he just changes the package the form but the sin is the same throughout history the sin has been the same when you when you move away from god's will abraham went down to egypt was it in god's plan no he picked up hagar along the way i mean sarah did but the question is you know what are you going to pick up along the way are you going to pick up something that will become a a, a rock in your in your heart ishmael did but god promised hagar that she would have a destiny too and her her see her son would also have a destiny 
But what kind of a destiny? He says he will be like a wild ass of a man. You know? And look till the look at the, the generations of his his progeny. Till today, they are, that's who they are. So you know, when 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 I said when I take this personally and I say, I remember the day I got my registered letter from Nigeria saying from from the High Court saying you are I am divorcing you for all lies, all the reasons that were put there were lies, lies, lies. I was so broken because in my family, I come from a very, very, very well-placed Indian family, and my in my family, they've never had a divorce. I actually fell down on the ground and I wept. My daughter, my fourth daughter, was around ten years old at that time. She didn't know what happened. She thought maybe somebody had died or something. She's mom, what happened? She just picked me up. She's mom, what happened? And I said nothing. I was so broken. I cried and cried and cried. Something inside of me just broke. It was fractured. This was the first man I met in my life. I married him when I was 28 years old. I had never been with a man, never had a man, never had a boyfriend. My children was to, used to laugh at me initially, but they don't laugh anymore. Because they see the testimony of what I stand for. I said, he will be the first and he will be the last. And I have remained faithful to that. And I think this is the reason why God has just covered me with his hands and and protected and says, you know, I don't know what, I don't know what, where this is going. It's like a destiny. Did Hagar have a destiny? She did. Did Isaac have a destiny? He did. Did the, their mothers have a destiny? They did. Am I saying I know my destiny, but I don't. But you know, each day as each day passes, I feel the comfort and I, I, I'm actually almost in tears as I'm speaking this because it's you can feel at the end of the day when you are able to go to bed and you still feel that that protection. It's like a it's like someone's hands are around you. It's like a blanket, a warm blanket. The love of God is around you. That's what I call it. Yeah. I can go to bed at sleep at night. Thank you, Linda. And that's what I wanted to share, you know. Yeah. Thank you, Linda. Thank you so much. Um, very encouraging words. Very encouraging words. We've got to move it on a bit here. So, Antoinette and then Shelly will wrap it up for us. Okay? Go ahead, Antoinette. Well, a lot Stand of... Goodbye, Shelly. A lot of the things that were... That I wanted to share... Can you hear me? Were already said. Yep. Yeah. Um, you know, uh, Rachel and I know each other very well, and she knows my testimony, and I know hers, and I know her struggles, and it seemed like every man that she was meeting was either married, divorced, children. There's always something in her age group, and I just want to encourage her. Um, first of all, I want to share with everybody to read First Corinthians 7 all the way through from the first verse to the end. It covers a lot of what we discussed and it covers it in the uh, reveal, the new covenant. And it's still the same. And it talks about, I'm going to just paraphrase, you know, the um, uh, that God never intended for divorce. You know, but Paul, you know, had said, stay in the condition you uh, were in when you were married. Uh, there are some conditions there for the unbelieving husband. 
that chooses to leave. And even with that being said, it says a woman is not bound or a man is not bound, and you know that they must marry another a believer. Now, again, there we go again with uh, these conditions um, because of the condition of the man's heart. It was talking about if you're burning with lust or desire, then it's better to be married. And you know, it covers every area. And you know, you know, Rochelle, I got married the first time as an unbeliever. But still, you are like your mother. I saw my mother and my grandmother, who were Catholic, live devout lives and never um, had another man. And then my mother finally broke down and married. And it was, you know, it was a good marriage, but it did bring a curse upon all of her children. Um, I, um, as an unbeliever, got married. And, um, you know, I got married as a Catholic, and I took my vows very seriously, and I never believed in divorce, and was single and celibate as a single mother for 24 years, I never dated, I never had a boyfriend, um, and I um, and I was in my youth, I was, I was in my early 30s, and I thought about, you know, more children, and, you know, should I remarry, and anyway, I never divorced, and then finally, uh, after 24 years, or 20, it was actually even more than 24 years, that I met someone, and I remarried, and he was a believer, and so he said he was a believer. Of course, he was not as strong of a believer as I was. So, you know, Rochelle knows the story. And, and I struggle and I suffer in my marriage today because of that. Because, and this is still another believer. And I was, believe, I was, I was, I compromised my faith to believe that, okay, it was okay. And she, Rochelle, you had this conversation with me. And I remember Rochelle saying that, you know, it's a lie that was brought into this church. And I have to say in hindsight, um, I can honestly say I regret it. I regret it even though I'm married to a believer. And um, and because now I see things, you know, in hindsight, we grow and mature. However, we don't want to put any of our convictions on other people. Rochelle has to seek the will of God for her life. However, there's a woman that, that really blessed me, and I'm going to encourage you to reach out and read her books. Her name is Nancy Lee DeMoss. You might already know about her. She has a ministry. She, too, went through this situation that you're going through. She just married in her 50s, and God gave her a man who was pure, just like her. So I say that to encourage you. If your desire is to marry, you don't need to compromise. God has someone for you if that is his will for you, and he will give you somebody that you are equally yoked with that does have the same testimony, the same belief. And again, you know, there's grace. You know, many have sinned. We've read about all these patriarchs that have sinned and been blessed, but there were consequences to everything. And, and in this chapter, it covers all of it, but at the very end, Paul says that even if you have a wife or you have a, a husband, you should live as though you don't, because it's going to be very troublesome for marriages in the last days, as well as for our children and raising children. And don't we see that now? I yeah. mean, more than ever, you know, and, um, and then again, you know, um, the conditions are there, you know, if someone's going to be fornicating, you know, it's better to marry. I mean, it covers everything. All I can tell you is everyone should really read that chapter because it'll help you minister to people. But I can tell you, and Rochelle knows as a living testimony, and I have seen how it's affected, you know, um, the, my, my children. You know, I see that, you know, remarrying has, my, and my ex-husband is still not remarried. You know, he's a Catholic and doesn't believe he will never remarry, yet he fornicates. You know, so, you know, it, it, you know what I'm saying? Is that better? You know, but, um, but anyway, 
and without all the details or whatever, Rochelle, you know, and you know how challenging that could be. And my husband loves me dearly, and I know my husband my entire life. I grew up with him. He was my boyfriend in college, and I thought because, you know, I knew the fact of his, his background, it was safe. You don't even know the background necessarily of the person you're marrying. Did he have biblical grounds for divorce? And even if he did, there's going to be consequences to it. So I say be very cautious. I agree with Joanna. I agree with Linda. You know my testimony. The bottom line is, though, the word has to speak and God has to speak to you directly. And it has to be your conviction. But your brothers and sisters are praying for you. And I encourage everybody, read that chapter, 1 Corinthians 7, from beginning to end. You'll see every scenario, but you will see that ultimately it's better that even if you are got called as a, like me, I got called as a believer, and I was married to an unbeliever, and God, he left. He left me and was fornicating, and I had many grounds for divorce, remained single. My, my life was so much better for 24 years, I can say, honestly, than when I married remarried and I remarried to a believer not that he doesn't love me like I said and not that he doesn't love the Lord but there are a lot of struggles that come with it and there's curses that come upon your children and so I, I just want to leave you with that Rochelle you know better than anyone you know me very well so Thank God bless you. you and pray for um let's pray for our sister absolutely amen let's do that thank you Antoinette very encouraging uh Shelley you have the last word Amen. <laughs> Much has been said. And um, we, as we said, we know the design of God. The design of God was established. But we also know that we live in a fallen world and we've all been messed up, all of us, from the time Adam and Eve made that call. I myself am my husband's fourth wife. I wasn't even thinking about my situation. And, and I mean, uh, we won't even, we've heard a lot of testimonies and I'm sure there are lots of people we, you can talk to. And I think that the father has recorded all these. We, we look at David with all his wives. We see the incident with Bathsheba. We have, we have all the scriptures. There are many scriptures on marriage and divorce and we also see that there that remarriage is taking place and going on and then we come to Yeshua who is laying down because that scripture that you quoted do I was just looking for them to quote where he says if a man puts away his wife except for sexual morality he makes her he causes her to commit adultery but before that when he introduces the subject, he says, I say to you, if someone even lusts in their heart. So we can sit here and go through all the dynamics of who's married, who's not, who got remarried, who's divorced. But the, he established the heart. There's some of us that are probably going to fit a perfect picture where we followed it to the letter. But here he's saying, if you even lusted in your heart you have already committed. One thing I will say to you is, having married the way I married my, as I said, I'm my husband's fourth wife, and I have children, if I sit every day to think about curses and whatever, I choose to believe that he is the one who says, if we confess sin, he's faithful. 
and he's just and he forgives and he is greater than any curse yes it's all but it's in the grace of god we have hope and everybody has to deal with their situation based on the conviction of the scriptures at the moment in time that it brings to your heart but what i will say to you our god is a god who can redeem any situation even the queen's family had problems nobody is exempt in life we all have issues we face things in all the situations of our lives so yes we do the best as he says acknowledge him in all our ways and let him direct our path some of us had it some of us didn't some we all doing the best that we can but i really believe there is a god and once you determine to save him he's the one that takes all the broken pieces and he's able to make something beautiful so and us amen 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 well amen thank you shelly thank you okay folks this was great discussion we could we could have gone on longer but we got to cut it off at some point as we're running late so let's uh thanks for your contributions each and every one of you thanks for the questions thanks for sharing um and let us continue to support each other in love and in prayer now let's do the blessing for the wine and the bread we have your wine or grape juice for the beverage let's bless ya barukata yahwa eloheinu melech haolam ore prihadaseh blessed are you ya o elohim king of the universe creator of the fruit of the vine father we thank you for the vine of david our messiah yeshua he is the vine we are the branches father may we remain in him so we can be fruitful for your kingdom. Taste and see. Yeah, it's good. The bread of provision of the Shabbat. Let's bless him for the bread. Baruch atah Yahuah Eloheinu melech ha'olam Zirechem Psalm 150 now, and then we have about 19 minutes or so of some music, or you could just uh, rejoice before our Maker. So we start off with Psalm 150. Let's read it together. Hallelujah! Praise Yah in His sanctuary. Praise Him in the firmament of His power. Praise Him for His mighty acts. Praise Him as befits the abundance of His greatness. Praise Him with the blast of the shofar. Praise Him with the lyre and harp. Praise Him with drum and dance. 
Praise him with organ and flute. Praise him with cymbals clanging. Praise him with trumpets resounding. Let all souls praise Yah. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Shabbat They didn't attack Israel. They didn't inflict any kind of damage upon them that was recorded anyway. But the threat achieved its effect. Even more, Moses recognized the natural kinship of the Edomites, and he didn't want to inflict great damage on them because they were a relative. In a few days after turning south, the people became depressed, they became disillusioned, angry, and now they speak out against Moses and against Yehovah. They had learned, if they'd learned anything by now, it seems, you would have thought they would have recognized it was folly to speak against Moses and to imagine that in doing so, in no way involved God. But when they rebelled against God's mediator, they rebelled against God. So they openly griped, not just about Moses, but also about the God who had redeemed them from their Egyptian oppression. The gripes, the usual argument, ah, things were better back in Egypt. Why would you disrupt us? Why would you bring us to this horrible place? Just allow us to die out here. But this time they took one more bold step in their rebellion. They said they had come to hate the food, the bread from heaven, manna that the Lord had been providing for them for 40 years. They said they're sick to death of that stuff. Well, in response to this lack of gratitude and trust, the Lord sent poisonous serpents to bite them and it killed many Israelites. So here we see that despite the rebellion, a certain maturity and understanding of the people of Israel had occurred. They recognized instantly that the serpents were a divine plague that was sent upon them, and their only hope of survival was to plead with Moses, their mediator, to intercede with God on their behalf. Finally, they understood that Moses' position was without equal. It was irreproachable. There weren't multiple mediators. There was no democratic solution to this. Even more, the people had come to realize the other vital principle of redemption and forgiveness of sin, the absolute necessity of repentance. Now, I hope you pay, paid close attention when we move through Exodus and then Leviticus, and now we're most of the way through Numbers because it has exposed this principle, ritual without trust and repentance, is ineffectual. Over and over, God says it's the condition of the heart that matters. Over and over again, it is made clear that the various rituals of atonement and of purification weren't a matter of uh, magic. They were a matter of obedience. 
ritual by itself accomplishes nothing. The ritual by itself, without the confession of wrongdoing, trust in the most holy one, possession of a contrite spirit, are indeed nothing but worthless mechanical acts of self-righteousness. And I want to make it as clear as possible to all who are listening, because it's hurtful to me. The way Hebrew history and liturgy and the Torah itself has been so maligned and, 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 and misrepresented and distorted. There was no general belief among the Hebrews that robot-like obedience to the law brought a good and proper relationship with God. It's not true. This is an erroneous concept of a works righteousness that is invariably attributed to the Jewish people by, by Christianity simply out of some kind of prejudice. This was not the norm in Israelite culture. Even more, there wasn't any belief in general that their reward for doing the law was any more than simply pleasing God. That was the reward. Of course, I can't deny that such thoughts and practices didn't exist among a minority of Hebrew, that they might have felt they would gain something. But it was not the ways of the mainstream teachers or followers of the God of Israel. Now, let me say this in another way. This belief that's almost universally assumed to be true, that the Old Testament was a works based method of attaining salvation that required no faith and was later replaced with a faith and grace based redemption called the new covenant that declared works to be bad, works to be irrelevant. This is just inaccurate. It's not biblical. First, salvation didn't mean to an ancient Hebrew what it means to today's followers of Christ. Salvation for them meant that Israel would become a world power from which the laws of the God of Israel would then become the universal stand, uh, uh, standard for all mankind. Salvation was similar to what happened to Israel when they left Egypt. It was an escape from the oppression of an earthly oppressor in order to establish the kingdom of God on earth in Canaan. There was no thought, there remains no thought, that if they obey the law, they'll go live with God in heaven. The Hebrews obey God because they love him. They obey his laws because the best thing in life for them is to please the Lord. Any kind of eternal reward for being faithful, that's, that's secondary. Now, we can all look to historically and criticize them to one degree or another for slowly and steadfastly focusing on creating and following man-made traditions. What today the church calls faith doctrines. Instead of the principles and laws written down in the Holy Scriptures. I mean, Jesus berated his own people for this. And as believers, we can know with a certainty that despite their love of God, too many Jews have rejected his mediator and his son, Yeshua. And this condemns them in a way that just grieves my heart. However, because Christians have accepted and fostered a, a distorted view of the way that 
Jews see the Torah and tradition and Judaism, we not only falsely accuse an entire people of religious folly and of legalism, we also accuse the Old Testament itself and thereby accuse God, the author of the Word. We accuse God of establishing legalism in the first place, even if it was only for a time, which is the claim of the dispensationalist teachings. Now, I unequivocally tell you today, this is a falsehood, and it's eroded the heart of the church for centuries. It has marginalized the very people who wrote down and protect the Holy Word of God and who produced our Savior. And it's kind of created an enmity between the church and the Jewish people where there ought to be brotherhood, just as what happened between Israel and Edom, Jacob and Esau. Well, let's get back to our story. Moses saw the people's admission of their sin against God, and he also saw their contrite hearts, and so as their mediator, Moses asked God to heal them. So we come upon one of the most difficult now and controversial stories in the Bible. The tale of the brazen serpent hung up on a pole. And we read that when the Israelites looked upon this brazen serpent, their snake bites were healed. Now what makes this all the more difficult is that Yeshua makes mention of this incident. And he even draws a comparison between that and what's going to happen to him in his coming crucifixion? And we read this in John 3.14. John 3.14. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. And there's that Son of Man reference again that we talked about in our study of the book of Daniel. So what are we to take from this wilderness event? How does this bronze serpent matter how does this compare to the death of Christ? Well, let's first see what Numbers says happened and why it happened. Jehovah told Moses to make a fiery serpent, to mount it on a pole, and when anyone who had been bitten by this divinely ordered plague of poisonous snakes, when they looked upon it, they'd be healed. And we're told that Moses complied, and he made the serpent out of either copper or bronze. And indeed, looking upon the serpent, healed those who had been bitten. That's about all that's said. Now this ought to immediately be a warning to us not to read more into it than what's here. We shouldn't speculate too heavily. That's been done on a grand scale, by the way, about this passage. But let's begin by examining the phrase about the pole, about the serpent in the original language. The Hebrew says that Moses was to make a seraph. And right there is where the difficulty starts. Because if we turn to Isaiah 6-2, we see this remarkable verse. Seraphim stood above him, each having six wings. With two he covered his face, two he covered his feet, with two he flew. And wouldn't you just know it? The heavenly seraphim of this passage is precisely the same word in Hebrew spelling, seraph. It's what it was that Moses hung up on that pole that's usually translated as a fiery serpent. Here's the thing. 
Hebrew word for serpent or snake is nahash. It's not seraph. And in neither Numbers 21.8 nor Isaiah 6 is the word nahash used. It's seraph. Is it possible that what was hung on that pole was not a snake, but something else? Since the term seraph is not precisely defined. Well, not likely, because in 2 Kings 18.4, we find another mention. And this was at a time, maybe five to six centuries, after this wilderness incident here in Numbers. Listen to this verse in 2 Kings 18.4. He, Hezekiah, removed the high places and broke down the sacred pillars and cut down the Asherah. He also broke in pieces the bronze serpent that Moses had made. Because until those days, the sons of Israel burned incense to it, and it was all called Nehushtan. Interesting. The Hebrew used for bronze serpent was Nekosheth Nachash. Nekosheth means bronze. And we find our usual Hebrew word for serpent or snake, Nachash. So here in 2 Kings is an independent account that indeed the object placed on the pole in, was in the shape of a snake, in the shape of a serpent, something that looked like a serpent anyway. But this entire incident is very bothersome for all kinds of reasons, not the least of which is the serpent is the primary biblical figure for representing Satan. From the first chapters of Genesis all the way through Revelation. So, is what we have here a God-ordained, symbolized representation of Satan being hung on a pole that somehow heals snake bites? And is then in the New Testament compared to Messiah's experience on the cross? And who does that comparison? Jesus. centuries later, Hezekiah, Hezekiah, destroys that pole and serpent, he's praised for doing that. Let's peel this in the back a layer by understanding what the problem was that caused Hezekiah to take down and to destroy that long-cherished bronze serpent hanging on a pole, a virtual icon the Israelites' wilderness experience. So the first question is, did Hezekiah do a bad thing or a good thing when he tore it down? Did it please God? Or was it not that much different than spitting upon the cross of Christ? Well, here's why Hezekiah did what he did. In 2 Kings 18, verse 1, we read this. Now it came about in the third year of Hosea, the son of Elah, king of Israel, that Hezekiah, the son of Ahaz, king of Judah, became king. He was 25 years old when he became king, and he reigned 29 years in Jerusalem, and his mother's name was Abi, the daughter of Zechariah, and he did right in the sight of the Lord, according to all 
David had done. Further, as we just read in verse 18, uh, as we had just read earlier in 18.4, for until those days the sons of Israel had burned incense to it, and it was called Nehushtan. The pole and that serpent that Moses had from the wilderness hundreds of years earlier had been kept. The pole and the serpent had become an image that the Israelites worshipped. They burned incense to it. And it became such an important object of worship, they had even given it a name, Nehushtan. But how was what the Israelites were doing in Hezekiah's day substantially different than what had happened out in the wilderness with Moses at God's direction? Even more since Christ equated, at least in some way, his crucifixion with the brazen serpent being lifted up on the pole. I mean, don't we adore the very pole, the cross, that Christ was lifted up upon? What's so different about the pole that God ordained be erected with the seraph on it in Moses' day, as opposed to the same pole used as an object of worship in Hezekiah's day, as opposed to the pole used to execute Jesus that is used today essentially as an object of worship. Tough questions. And the ancient rabbis have some very interesting takes on both the brazen serpent and separately the seraphim. That stand, that's, seraphim is just the plural of seraphim. These seraphim that stand guarding God's throne. And please keep in mind that the exact same Hebrew word, seraph, is used for serpent on the pole, here in Numbers, and for the heavenly creatures that translate seraphim. What follows is more or less a summary of the thoughts of several of these rabbis and sages, with a couple of my own thoughts peppered in. First, let's revisit Isaiah 6 2. Starting in verse 1 of Isaiah 6. In the year of King Uzziah's death, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, lofty and exalted, with the train of his robe filling the temple. Seraphim stood above him, each having six wings. With two he covered his face, two he covered his feet, two he flew. One called out to the another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds trembled at the voice of him who called out, while the temple was filling with smoke. And then I said, Woe is me, for I am ruined. I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a burning coal in his hand, which he had taken from the altar with tongs, and he touched my mouth with it and said, Behold. This has touched your lips, and your iniquity is taken away. Your sin is forgiven. So what can we say about seraphim, seraph? They are heavenly spirit beings. They're said to have several wings. They stand above the Lord who sits on his throne, and they're so holy and so pure that they're allowed to take the very coals from the heavenly altar. Part of the meaning of the term seraph is burning or fiery, and it comes from this association.
propitiation in Isaiah chapter 6 with the fiery coals of the heavenly altar. So, seraphim are seen by definition as fiery creatures. Now remember, these are spirit beings, so all association with anything physical, fire, coals, all like this, this is figuratively speaking. From this we see they can fly through the air, wings, they can transport back and forth between heaven and earth, and they're allowed the closest access to God. They even were permitted to carry the, these, these purifying coals, in a spiritual sense, from the heavenly altar fire that takes away iniquity and it forgives sins. Seraphim are amazingly holy, powerful, and have tremendous authority, and they're associated with fire. Why? Because one of the purposes of fire, there's two, one is to destroy and annihilate. The other is what? To purify, that's right, to purify. And further, if we compare biblical descriptions of cherubim and seraphim, we find they are generally identical. Some sages have suggested they're just two names for the same thing. In fact, it's likely that while cherubim is the proper name for a particular kind of heavenly being, being seraph or seraphim is more probably more uh, meant to be a, a description of the being. It may well only be describing a characteristic chairman, fiery. Others opine that they are two beings of equally high order. They are essentially the same type of being, but they have very different tasks in heaven. Be that as it may, cherubim and seraphim are a special and high order of heavenly being. Something different than what is typically called angels. They are the guardians of God's throne and they protect his personal holiness. Now here's where we have to broaden our subject matter just a little bit to include Satan. We are told in the scriptures that Satan began as a very high order of heavenly being. He was among the most beautiful, we're told, the most powerful of heavenly beings. From the Apocalypse, verse 12, 7 through 9. Understanding this is not scripture, but it's, it tells you what the mentality was. And there was a great battle in heaven, and Michael and his angels fought with the dragon, and the dragon, dragon fought his angels, and they prevailed not, neither was their place found anymore in heaven. And that great dragon was cast out, that old serpent who was caused, uh, called the devil and Satan, who seduced the, the whole world, and he was cast into the earth, and his angels were thrown down to him. And we'll find that same thing in the book of Revelation. We also find this statement um, as well. We find this startling bit in Isaiah 14:12. How have you fallen from heaven, O star of the morning, son of the dawn? You have been cut down to the earth, you who have weakened the nations. You said in your heart, I'll ascend to heaven. I'll raise my throne above the stars of God. I will sit on the mount of assembly in the recesses of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I'll make myself like the most high. Nevertheless, 
Sheol, to the recesses of the pit. So here we have a statement that tells us Satan was in heaven. He was gorgeous, but he was sent down to earth because of his desire to rebel, to actually usurp God. But he didn't go without a fight. Now here's one more verse, and we're getting close to at least putting a couple pieces together, so hang in there with me. This is a familiar verse to most of us, as it's about God dealing with Satan, the serpent, as a result of his deceiving Eve into partaking of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, Genesis 3.14. And the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you more than all cattle, and more than every beast of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. Now notice that the serpent, Satan, was cursed. And that from that day forward he'd crawl on his belly. Now obviously what does that mean? One time he was upright. Otherwise, being cursed to crawl on your belly wouldn't have any meaning. And we must never think that Satan was like the first snake on planet Earth. The Bible makes it clear that this serpent was unlike any beast of the field or any other living thing. He was unique. Of all the beasts, this one could speak. Okay, now let me throw one more, one more small bit of information your way. Another very familiar passage probably to most of you. Revelation 12. And there was war in heaven, and Michael and his angels waging war with the dragon, and the dragon and his angels waged war, and they were not strong enough, and there no longer was a place found for them in heaven. See, here's the thing. In addition to being symbolized as a serpent, Satan is now symbolized as what? A dragon. And obviously this is Satan, and he was higher than angels because it even speaks of his angels. And his fight with Michael that we read about, read about a few minutes ago. So what's a dragon? Well, first of all, the dragon is a mythical creature that goes back to ancient China. It doesn't appear to be part of Middle Eastern culture or lore. These were, rather, there were for sure other god creatures of the Middle East that were generally part man, part beast. They had wings, but they weren't represented as dragons. Dragons were all beasts. They didn't have any human element to them. Since dragons had become part of Greek folklore, the Greeks invented their own word for this creature of fantasy. Thus we have the Greek word dracon in the New Testament, which then we turn around and pronounce it in English as dragon. Now, what is it that John had in mind when he chose the word translated into English as dragon in, the, in Revelation? Was it a creature that any Hebrew would have taken as pure fantasy if they were even familiar with what it is in the first place there's no record that Jews had any idea what a dragon was let alone that the image of dragons was even in their literature so it's highly unlikely that a dragon is what John had in his mind I suspect John saw 
something more within the context of his own culture, his own Hebrew culture, of which the Chinese dragon was not going to be part. The Jewish John would have envisioned something more along the lines of a biblical creature, not something Greek, something evil, something fiery, a spiritual being that could fly. What does that bring to mind? I mean, I see a rather interesting connection between the winged seraphim that stood erect in heaven the earthly serpent in the Garden of Eden that had been cast out of heaven, who used to be erect, but now he was cursed to crawl on his belly. The seraph that was put onto the pole and held up high into the air and cured snake bites. And the dragon, so-called, dracon, who is Satan, who is fiery, flies with wings, looks like a serpent, and is identified in Revelation as Satan. You see all the connections here? I mean, could it be that the heavenly being that was cast out of heaven was technically a seraph, a seraphim? And it was a rebellious seraph who became known on earth as Satan. It's quite interesting that Yeshua says this about Satan in Luke 10.18. And he said to them, I was watching Satan fall from heaven like lightning. In Bible, lightning is just another representation of fire. They didn't know it was an electrical charge. It is at times called fire from heaven, as a matter of fact, in the Bible. In other words, Jesus was saying, I saw Satan fall from heaven like a fiery streak through the sky. And we know that a seraphim was a fiery heavenly being. We've been reading about it. As Numbers 21 states, it was a seraph put upon the pole of Moses and held up high. And that the so-called dragon of Revelation, which is identified as Satan, has all the characteristics of the fiery serpent, and it has wings, and it has flying ability. Now, there are a couple of places in the Bible that say that the heavenly being that was kicked out of heaven was a cherubim. But as I said earlier, when you compare the descriptions of a cherubim and a seraphim, they're virtually identical, with just the possibility that their duties were different. And likely, seraph, indicating fiery, is a characteristic of, cherub, of, of cherubim, or maybe a type of cherubim. Now, I'll throw you one more curveball. In the ancient era, it was common that amulets of poisonous insects or, or dangerous animals were used to counteract the bite or a sting of a poisonous creature. So if a scorpion bit you, a sorcerer might perform a ritual over you, over you using a scorpion symbol. It's interesting that while we, of course, find this as a laughable superstition, in the modern era, the medical establishment uses the venom of a poisonous creature to inject into a person who's been bitten or stung in order to counteract that poison. It really is the same principle. It's just that one is spiritual and the other is physical. 
In addition to indicating royal authority, a serpent was seen as a symbol of both fertility and healing. That is how Israel at this time, in their wilderness journey, that's how they would have thought of a fiery serpent. And in fact, it was for the purpose of healing of snake bites that God ordered the serpent to be fashioned and then put up on a pole. So for the Israelites to see a serpent symbol as healing them from snake bites would have seemed about par for the course. That wouldn't have seemed strange to them. We don't read about Israelites going, why would you do that, Moses? You know why? It made all kinds of sense to their minds. So what are we to take from all this? First, the seraph symbol put on the pole did not, of itself, heal anything. People didn't touch it. As far as we know, there was no ritual performed with it. It was not a magic object, but it was a familiar object. Even the outward principle of its use was familiar. However, it was simply the looking upon it in trust that first began with confession and repentance. That's what healed. Second, at the least, the seraph on the pole has messianic overtones because Yeshua gave it a messianic attachment. And at the least, the messianic meaning is that just as the seraph would be nailed to a pole and hung up into the air, so would Christ. Thereby, he was predicting his own crucifixion. Now, how much beyond the comparison of merely being nailed to a pole Yeshua meant to communicate is pure speculation that frankly has led to an awful lot of allegory. Now, there's been some inter other interesting theological thoughts about this, but it's hard to assign these thoughts to more than just speculation. For instance, that when the serpent was put upon the pole, the purpose was not really to look at the serpent, but to look through the serpent as you look up to heaven. And that it was essentially the same thing with Christ. That, that his body, that, that human part of him, wasn't the critical object, rather it was looking in faith through his body towards the heavenly throne of God. Maybe. Another standard teaching is that just as men dying in sin are saved by means of a man, Yeshua, dying on the cross, so are men dying of snake bites, saved, healed, by a snake held up on a pole. Maybe. Yet another is that because the serpent on the pole was made of bronze, probably copper, it had to be, what color? Reddish. And red symbolizes blood in the Holy Scriptures. So it was prophetic of Jesus shedding his blood on the cross years later. Maybe. I mean, I could go on and on. Because that's the problem with allegory and speculation. I mean, you can sit here and attach meaning to something via almost any kind of poetic similarity that we can think up. It's, not, it's never ending. 
The only solid connections we see from the Bible about this strange incident are that sin is going to be dealt with by some kind of God-ordained object being nailed onto a pole and lifted up into the air. That much we can see. In Moses' era, it was the seraph, and the sin that was being dealt with was the people's rebellion for griping against God and griping against Moses. Another solid connection is that people would look upon that object on the pole and they would experience some kind of very real healing. Again, in Moses' era, it was looking upon that fiery serpent. In Christ's era, it was looking upon him. And in both cases, it required repentance, a kind of very deep trust. And beyond that, I'm not sure we can attach much more significance. Now, actually, I find the more informative and concrete aspects to the story of the brazen serpent to be the biblically-based connection between the seraphim, the heavenly seraph, the serpent of the Garden of Eden, Satan, the seraph on the pole, fiery serpent, and the dragon of Revelation that was cast out of heaven. For that, there's a pretty major connection. Now, let me end this segment on the fiery serpent with this thought. Perhaps the most pointed lesson that we can take from this story concerns the all too often gradual kind of frog in a kettle progression from something being a God-ordained symbol to it becoming an object of worship, idol worship. Nothing could be clearer than that that fiery serpent on the pole was divinely instructed. It was pure and it was good. And the only thing Moses and the people could do was to obey and then receive healing. Not because it was this metal object, but because it was their obedience to God. Yet there's nothing to indicate, and here's the point, that this was more than a one-time solution to a unique and specific problem. A plague of snake bites due to their rebellion. The serpent on the pole wasn't to become a general symbol. It wasn't to become a talisman to be used for any kind of general healing they sought. We've seen God do this at other times. Moses was one time told to hit a rock to give up water. Another time he was told to speak to a rock to produce water. That doesn't mean Moses was now to assume that every time Israel needed water, he would just decide on his own to go around looking for a promising boulder and whack it. Or yell at it. Nor was Israel supposed to be on the lookout for a rock formation. Oh gosh, that looks like the one we did before. Oh, this has got to be a good one. And they sure weren't to burn incense to it. And they weren't to begin a rock-worshipping cult. We saw that apparently the brazen or the fiery serpent on the pole was kept by the Israelites as an active icon for at least five centuries after the Exodus.
there is no indication that God intended Israel should have done that. No indication that there were other incidents of healing that involved that pole and that serpent. But people being people, Israel hoped they had found a magic charm for healing. They could use it whenever they wanted to. People got ill and injured all the time. And just like today, people will do pretty much anything to have their suffering relieved, to have their bodies healed, their lives extended. And so the Hebrews kept that pole with the bronze serpent on it, and eventually they began to honor it. They began to venerate that pole and that serpent in hopes that if they paid homage to it, it would bring about healing. The fault in all of this was that they adored the object instead of the one who can actually heal, the God of Israel, who has no form at all. King Hezekiah finally realized this, and he destroyed what began as a fully authorized, one-of-a-kind, but one-use only, divinely a divinely ordained instrument of God, but through misuse over the years, it had become a worthless, an ungodly object of false worship, sorcery, idolatry. What a big lesson there is in this for all of us. Please rise. Okay, folks, there we go. Uh, Numbers chapter 21 this time. A lot going on here in the whole in the chapter, especially with this uh, serpent on the pole. There's a lot of different um, ways you can look at this. Tom has an interesting way here, um, building on the, the word seraph that does appear. Yah does tell him to make a seraph. That's the word that's used. Um, but after that, it's not mentioned again. So Yah says, make a seraph and hang it on a pole and have the people look at it and they'll be healed. And then it says, so Moses made a bronze serpent. It went back to Nachash. It went back to Nachash. So clearly it was a Nachash that was a, sna- a serpent or a sa- snake-like image that was put on the, on the pole. Um, and brazen for specific reason to to look like the real thing. It looked like one of those fiery serpents. But here's the difference. Because it was bronze, it had no poison in it. That thing that was killing them was now made into something, hanging on a pole, looked very much like the thing that was killing them, but now it had no poison in it. And I think that's the connection there to Yeshua, right there. Because Yeshua came in the form of sinless man, in the form of sinless man, hanging on a tree, but no sin in him. No sin in him. That's the connection with those two. What do you guys think? There's lots that can be said. There's other things that the rabbis have said here about, um, you know, what happened when Moses, you know, made uh, made this image and how he got it this to be on the pole and all that stuff. We'll leave that aside for now. And I'll open the floor up for your comments about this, about anything else in the teaching uh, that you may have.
Wish we had more time to talk about it, though, but we'll do what we can until the last minute. Who wants to go first? Just a really, yeah, a really quick one. I, I missed uh, what you said. So uh, it was a seraph, but yet it was a, 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 a serpent. And, a, and I don't know how you pronounce it. But yeah, so, so I was like... The story, the story comes along in Numbers 21, and it tells us how the people complained, and then, you know, these fiery serpents came and bit the people. The word that used throughout that, all that narrative there is nachash, for snakes or serpents, right? And so they re repented, and they come to Moses, and they tell, you know, Moses, please pray for us. Moses prays for them, and Yah says to Moses, okay, make a... Uh, Make a seraph, that's the word it says in Hebrew. Mm -hmm. Put it on a pole. Have the people look at it. You know, when they look at it, they'll be they'll be they'll be safe, they'll get their healing. But when so Moses then the next sentence was says Moses made a bronze serpent goes back to Nachash. The only time seraph is used is when Yah instructs him to make this image. Every every other conversation about it following that, including in in Kings. It's always nachash, perfect. So I'm not sure why that's there. Bit of a mystery. Tom tries to explain it by bringing in other images, images of seraphim, which I think is a little bit of a rabbit hole, <laughs> to be honest. Because this story is here for particular reasons, pointing to Yeshua. That's why all these mysterious stories are here in the Torah. This is a clear indication of Yeshua and how he fulfills the mission that Yah sends him on. And he, he gives you an example here. Here is, you're going to take this this animal that was killing you before, right? We're going to make something that looks exactly like it, but there's no poison in it. And you're going to look at it with faith and receive your salvation. It's the same thing for Yeshua. You, you're going to take this person that looks like an ordinary man, looks like sinful man. He came in the form of sinful man, but there's not one ounce of sin in him. And on him, you have to look with faith to receive salvation, to receive eternal life. That's the primary connection. There are other smaller ones as well, I think. So the one that he made... Well, you make, a, you make of it what you will, right? I'm not saying discard it, throw it away, but, you know, compare. You know, just think it through. I mean, the one, the one that is, you know, that you just mentioned about Yeshua, I mean, th that is the the most classic one, especially if you came from the church. I mean, I mean, Yeshua himself makes that connection, right? Yeah. Right. So it's not something that's overly su surprising or... Right. So, it, I mean, it's pretty much right. a matter of the fact. Yeah, so you're right, Rochelle. Like some things are up. The, hey, I always say the plain things are the main things, and the main things are the plain things. It doesn't have to be, you know, ooh, ooh, ooh all the time. You know what I mean? Sometimes it's right in your face. Don't be distracted by. I don't know. That's how. That's how I think. Don't be distracted by rabbit holes. Mm, okay, so you're thinking that the connection between Satan and Seraph is is a bit of a rabbit hole. I think so. It's off the. It's off the picture. It's off the yeah, picture. I had a hard time yeah. following him, to be honest. Yeah. Um, uh, it, it's sort of. Yeah. But it was interesting. I was like, oh, okay. <laughs> like you said. Yeah.
There's something yeah. else going on too with this hanging it on a pole. Mm -hmm. In the Hebrew, it says it's the same word that you would use like for a standard. Some translations actually say standard. So you you know what a standard is, right? It's something standard. that an army carries in triumph. Okay, get the picture. The standard of this bronze serpent that used to be a big problem for us, it's our standard now. We're carrying this baby back from battle in triumph. We've defeated it. The standard. What did Yeshua, what did the saying, I think it's Colossians, he said, having, having made a fool of principalities and powers, it's the same thing. When we lift him up high, we make a shame of them. He's our standard. It's the same connection. We lift him up triumphantly. And we say, here is our king. Look at him for life. Right? Because he's not on the cross anymore. He's alive. So that's the image we present to the world. A live Messiah. An alive savior. Not a dead man. He's alive. He's the God of the living. He is alive. So that's how we present him. Triumphantly. Oh God, raised from the dead. Triumphantly. Parade him around. Just the, just that image of, you know, the standard, you know, the, the snake on the standard and you're marching him around. Hey, we've triumphed over these snakes. Yeah, yeah. Same thing. We've triumphed over death. We've triumphed over death with our Messiah, Yeshua. He's our standard. He's the one who gives us eternal life. It's the same, it's, you know, it's nothing new. Same old, same old. That's right, that's right. I, it, yeah, you're right. It's, uh, it's pretty good. I mean, aside from, from, from that whole discussion about Saraf, I really liked what he said about the law not being a workspace. You yeah, know? Um, yeah. I thought, I don't know why for some reason it, it, it made more I mean, he said it before, and of course, you know, being and, and you know, having come into a full understanding of the Hebraic um, sort of understanding of the scriptures, you know, we understand that. But for some, I don't know what he said. He said, we accuse Yah that the law, um, I don't know if he said that the law was a curse, because, you know, a lot of, we've heard many teachings saying... Yeah that the curse of the law but it's not the law that's a curse right the law is good that's what Romans 7 yeah. says yeah. the law is holy and he you know we uphold it it's 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 what the law reveals it reveals the curse in us it reveals the sin in us you know and then I don't know if that's how he phrased it or or maybe when he was speaking that sort of gelled for me but it, you know I I feel like yeah, that that was really good, and and of course, thinking that um, um, that that the Jews um, have that understanding. Oh yeah, we're we're performing all these um, all these commandments, all these mitzvot to um, to bring eternity to be saved. But they no, they they always believed that they were saved. You know, uh, it yeah. was never. I don't think it was ever an issue, you know. Um, it was more yeah. what to do once we are saved. Right. right. Yeah. Yeah. So, and I really yeah. like to 
said obedience to the law was simply out of love for the Lord. And so many times this is what Yeshua says. This is what John says as well, you know. Yeah. He's reading second, uh, the second epistle of John. He says it very clearly, you know. If you love him, you will obey his commands, you know. Um, and this is from the beginning, the beginning. What, what, what is the beginning in the Bible? You know, so um, I don't even know where I'm going with this. But yeah, I uh, it was good. I I liked uh, I liked that. And then what else did you say that I thought was pretty good? Yeah. So the yeah the main thing was really about the seraph that really I was like what? And I've listened to the teaching. This is my probably third time. Oh, yeah. And I still don't get you know like not sure what he meant by you know that connection between seraph seraphim. You know the dragon and all that. Although I, th- although I thought it was interesting, I did not know that dragon uh, was was sort of uh, a Greek uh, sort of rendition or myth- you know mythical uh, sort of flying monster. But uh, so it looks like John did not see a dragon as that, and that's what I always thought. I thought that. You know, John actually saw a dragon, like a Chinese dragon. Yeah. <laughs> but it's it's not right, based from what my understanding of what what Tom was explaining that yeah. it's not. Yeah. And it's, it's not. It's not. Yeah. If we if we read that and we think like a Chinese dragon, we're <laughs> we're like our thinking is way 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 off base. It's just as just as Tom says, some mysterious, lo- unusual looking, great being beast or whatever you know it doesn't you know not that not necessarily you know like the chinese version something that he you know he struggled to find words for right okay so so he used he used he used the the greek word dracon does that mean then that the chinese um had had already um come into contact with the greeks and did the Greeks know, you know, did they know about the dragons in, in China or like... Uh, I think yeah. I think, I think the, the whole concept of the dragon originated in China. Did, did Tom not say that from the outset? Right, he did. Yeah. So I'm saying... Yeah. So what my question is, so that means then that the Greeks knew about it? Because, you know, the Chinese, this, this, this was like... 5,000 years ago, right? Yeah. Yeah, the Chinese, you know, we we know that the Chinese uh, um, had this symbolism, uh, but then what? When you say the Greeks knew about it, then you have to put a time frame in, right? When when were the Greeks, when were the Greeks, um, you know, when did the Greeks have control of the world, right? Control of the known world of those days. Right, so that is my question. Yeah. How, how how did the Greeks come to know about the word dracon? And when did the Greeks um, come in touch with the Chinese? Well, I don't know. I do, I'm not a historian. I can't answer that question. But we don't. Uh-huh. You know, if we think that it took Marco Polo for for us to find a way to the east from the west, we're wrong. We fall into the white man's history of things, right? People knew each other. People got around. From the ancient days, they were always trading paths, meeting all over the place. Mm. Mm-hmm. 
don't think it, you know, I don't think it happened, you know, as you've been told in, according to European history. What do you think? Well, for sure, that I, that, <laughs> that part I agree, you know. I mean, that's why we find, uh, you know, in Latin America. Um, these, there you go. Uh, right, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> and we find pyramids, <laughs> you know, with the Aztecs, and you're like, okay, this definitely, that means, you know, that uh, people from yeah. uh, from Africa must have crossed. They made it over somehow. Oh, oh totally, right. absolutely, yeah. right, yeah. you know. And even even the way you know they 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 represent it, they very much look like. I mean, the traits look like um, African traits or uh, black men. So yeah, oh, that's a good point. I never thought about it. All right, I will okay. uh, hush from now. Thank you. All right, thanks, Rochelle. Uh, Judith or Carl? Yep. Hi. Okay. Uh, okay. Um, I am sort of going to be um, segue a little bit um, and involve a bit of etymology as well. Um, when we talk about that um, so-called uh, that hush on um, on that um, Judith, Judith, uh, just hold on, hold on for one second, please. Just hold on for one second. Okay, sorry, hon. Start over, okay. please. Yeah, okay. start over, please. Yeah. Right. Okay. Um, okay. Um, I was going to segue a little bit um, with the Nakash, mm -hmm. um, bringing it, and with a bit of etymology, bringing it to today's terms of what we do as well. Um, before I do that, I agree with um, Rochelle right there, talking about the Africans. We were trading, the Africans were trading with, with um, South America and all that long before um, Marco Polo and Waterway closed, okay? So anyway, apart from that, the um, caduceus, which is um, the medical symbol, if you look at the medical symbol, it has a snake on a pole, okay? So um, that I'm wondering if uh, it could have been um, a takeoff of that um, with the pharmacia. Remember, pharmacia also comes from sorcery. Um, if you look at the Greek word, pharmacia, um, sorcery, witchcraft, medication, um, druggist. You realize that this is where the, all this is coming from? The, this caduceus, the snake on the pole at the, which they were worshipping. So I'm wondering if it got tainted in the whole, um, you know, when, when first of all, they, they had this serpent or nakash on a pole um, in the wilderness when they were getting bitten. And this ad, this was like a caduceus or a snake on the pole, like what we're using for the medical symbol right now. Um, and then um, the whole thing of pharmacia coming into it, which as I said, is um, the etymology from Greek and um, meaning druggist. You realize that as a pharmacist, if you trace it back, it means druggist or poisoner. In Revelation 18 to 23, verse 23, it talks about this. It's really strange that, you know, when we are actually using all these symbols now. So, it's just a thought. Yeah, no, that's a good thought, uh, Judith. That's a good thought. Um, you know, it's like, it's just so typical of uh, Hasatan. He's got to take something God has uh, given, and he's got to 
sort of twist it and use it for his own evil, wicked devices. So yeah, you're right. That same symbol appears. I see, see it often too with like two snakes, right? You see two snakes twined around together. You know, I think that's yeah. over the symbol of the United Nations or the WHO. One of those. Yeah, it's like a medical, medical, medical symbol. It's supposed yeah. to be a medical symbol. Yeah, supposed like, to be, yeah, yeah. Medical symbol. Supposed to but, be. but it's been. But remember where, where pharmacy comes from as well. Pharmacy, sorcery, yeah. witchcraft. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Describing. So I think, and I, I'll just interject this point here. Sometimes we think of this serpent and this enemy as some two-horned tail between leg ugly if we see him no this was a beautiful creature created and he's not so much opposite of but as you said dua he is like an angel of light that's why we get deceived he looks like the real thing and i think that's the points um um tom was drawing so he was showing this word seraph that means fiery being we we making we using words it looked like a flying serpent then he brought in as he was saying the language in revelation which would not have been in hebrew thought because they had no concept of a dragon so when we read it in revelation and they use the word dragon he's tracking where that is coming from and i think the whole point he was making when he was looking at the word seraph is that Hasatan, the the Satan, the adversary, which is the real meaning of the word, he was in that group of angels, the highest order. He was in that group of heavenly beings. Okay, and um, and so so just to, to add that to the thoughts, and I really liked. I think when he started, it might have been just from the refresher because I missed last week. But when I think he was saying in the beginning, you know, that it is, it is, it that the, the the core thing here has always been the hearts of people, the hearts, and that I think he was making the comment. Help me if I'm wrong. I don't know if anybody took notes. He was talking about, you know, it, no amount of rituals concerning purification of atonement. It's the heart condition the heart and it starts with repentance that's the core thing and dare we not ever fall into that falsehood where we think that if we attain a certain kind of purity or we get everything so right that somehow it is this that makes us arrive no it's not well, i think he said it he says none of that no matter how perfect you perform it is any indication of your relationship with, and he, because we know how a lot of people out there doing that a lot more perfectly and longer than we are. If the issue is, have you seen his Messiah and your relationship and your heart condition, not the outward performance? And um, I'll leave it there. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you, Shelley. Thank you, Shelley. That's a good spot uh, to leave it at. Um, oh, I see Richard. Richard, go ahead, my brother. Thank you, sir. Hope you can hear me. Yeah. Okay, listen, um, just clarify for me, um, Tom was saying that salvation for the Israelites of that day had to do with being a world power and actually had nothing at all to do with what we consider salvation to be, which is for our soul of today. 
and it has caused a lot of um, bitterness, anxiety, whatever, conflict mm-hmm. between the Jews and the Christians even up, even up today. Uh, is that what you understood what, that he was talking about? Um, let me see, Richard, I'm going to have to pull that. Uh, let me see if I can pull that um, PowerPoint up again. Let me see what it said. For my son! says there was no belief among the ancient Hebrews anyway that obedience to the law brings eternity with God right that and was that is that what you're getting at and yeah, yeah. It, yeah what I'm saying is it, my understanding was the word salvation yeah that it, well, for them was just to become a world power a world conqueror yeah and had nothing to do with the salvation of our souls as we understand it today. yeah well yeah I, th- I think when he used that word like become a world power, probably he could have chosen some better words. What he should have said was the kingdom, God's kingdom be established on earth through Israel. That's what he should have said. He, he used a kind of a word kind of frivolously, but that's what he, that's what he meant. That's what the, that's what the Hebrews look for. They look for God's kingdom on earth established through them. They were to bring God's kingdom to the whole world. So that's 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 how they saw salvation. You had to be you had to be part of Israel to be saved. And as we absorb, as the whole world becomes saved, then you know all of Israel, you know, becomes saved. The world becomes Israel. Yeah. yeah, yeah. It's not it's not like it's not for the purpose of you know lauding it over the other nations. No, 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 no. It's for bringing the other nations in. That, that was the original intent, and, and they understood that. Yeah, somebody was commenting there. Was, oh, was that you, Shelley? Yeah. Oh, I'm sorry. I thought I oh, I'm muted. No, no, no. <laughs> okay, no. No, I am nodding in agreement with you. Okay. Yes. Good. And so it's so interesting. Yeah. It's so interesting that today we were saying that's the main difference between Christians and main Drury. Yeah. We Christians believe, and this is why it was so difficult for them to see a suffering Messiah. Yeah. Because they have always seen that conquering king that would dominate and yeah. and, 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 and as you say, the world would come in from that his rule would be established forever and ever. So for 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 us, we see one Messiah, two comings. Right. Theme as a suffering servant coming to deal with that thing with Adam, and we are awaiting his second return as right king. With all the Jews see, if they see two messiahs, they see Mashiach ben David, Mashiach ben Yosef, but they see one coming. They don't see him coming to suffer, they see him coming only to reign and rule. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so true. Right, you are. Yeah. That's the big difference. Yeah. And as Tom says, it's because because of where both are focused, it's caused distortion and confusion. Yeah. Yeah. When we should be brothers, we 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 facing each other as opposites. When in fact we should be embracing each other as brothers because it's the same coin 
the front sides. Yep. yep. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Shelly, what do you mean by one coming? I mean, how is that possible? How could Yeshua, I mean, Messiah ben David, be Messiah ben Yosef in one coming? Can you, do you mind elaborating a little bit? All I'm saying is the Jews believe in one coming. If you read the scriptures in when the, the, the apostles are giving their report, hear what they say, the men, the men on the road to Emmaus, that was our study this week. They, they meet the stranger and they're like, are you the only one who doesn't know what has happened in Jerusalem about Yeshua of Nazareth? We had hoped that he was the Messiah. When a Jew talks about Messiah, they're talking about a redemption who will come and deliver them from the oppression of everything else. That's how they've always seen the Messiah. When Yeshua died, the men on the road to Emmaus are saying, we had hoped that he was this Messiah. What they did, they said, and so then they talked about him. They said, have you not heard? He was a man mighty in word and deed. Mighty in word and deed is how they describe the prophets, Moses, Elijah, Elisha. So what they did when they saw him die on the cross is they, they stopped. Okay, he couldn't be the Messiah because that redemption hadn't come. Because part of the description of a Messiah is that he will come and he will rule. He will deliver you from the oppression of your enemy and he will reign and rule. And that didn't happen, which is why it's hard for them to believe. So they see one coming. They see, so I'm saying the Jews see one coming where he comes to reign and rule. They didn't see a coming where like Joseph, he wouldn't be recognized. He'd be rejected and he would suffer. They didn't see that. They're just seeing one coming of him to rule and reign. We as Christians see one Messiah who is both Joseph, son of Joseph, that's his first coming where he came to suffer, and his second coming where he's coming to rule as King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Amen. So that's uh, that's what I'm saying. Oh, okay, right. Okay, so and this I... is why they they always avoid uh, scriptures like Isaiah 53. 53 and stuff with the suffering servant, and they kind of bluff it over and say it's Israel because and especially I think why they do it too is because that's what Christianity focuses on. The cross and as he, as Tom was saying today, we made that cross like how they made this pole on the serpent. We push it across this cross and they're like eh, 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 the Messiah we have coming to rule and reign he ain't coming on no cross. <laughs> and, and what what, what should what should have been a united picture has now become a face-off. Yeah. So, yeah. so we're fighting each other when we are in fact brothers and we, we see the story from different perspectives, but it's the same story and it's the same Messiah. And it's, you know, sometimes, Shelly, I think it's a pride thing. You don't want to yes, admit, you know, you don't admit, okay, you guys got a point with that one. We'll have to give you, you know what I mean? We want to keep everything, you know? No, no, you guys are wrong, you know? It's, it's that kind yeah. of a tug of war that we have between the two parties Na natural allies like we should be natural allies just yes. automatically you know but we got to yes. come together 
And the, and the only way we can come together is in Yeshua, the Messiah. In him, there's unity. In him, there's strength. In him, there's power to change our world. I really believe that. And that's why Paul says, when they come, it will be life. It will be like, even we, we will not experience that fullness until they to come and see. It's sad, though, that according to the scriptures, that many of them will perish in, yeah. in their way, right? But they yeah, will yeah. be a remnant. They will be a remnant. They will cry out to him on that day, right? The scriptures tell us. They'll look upon him whom they're pierced. And they're Bernice wants to say something. Go ahead, Bernice. But Yeshua was willing to establish the Messianic kingdom on his first coming, but they rejected him. Yes. Yeah. They rejected him. His people rejected him. Can't, can't hear her. We see the sin as him being on the cross, uh, them putting him on the cross. But the biggest sin was the rejection of Messiah when he came. And that rejection prevented the Messianic kingdom from coming in at his first coming. That's why the coming as the suffering servant was so hidden in the scriptures. If you just went to Torah to try to find that suffering servant, you wouldn't find it very easily. You had to wait for the prophet. And when you looked at the prophecy, you didn't even know who they were talking about. So it was hidden. And they did not pursue it. So when, when he came, they rejected him so that the messianic kingdom could not come in at that time. And we all have to wait for the second coming for the messianic kingdom to come in. And I think if we go back and we read it, we will see through the scriptures that that was hidden from them. And they could not understand it. They couldn't. It was hidden. It was not a straightforward thing. In the, now that he has come the first time, and we know that he's coming back a second time, and because of history, they can see something, we can see some things now that they couldn't see, but it was hidden from them, and they couldn't find it. Yeah, the scriptures say, Bernice, I agree with you, the scriptures say that blindness in part has come, until, so there's an end coming to the blindness, when the veil will be removed and they will see, they will see him as we see him. Hallelujah. Biggest sin was they didn't recognize him the first time. Not the cross, not the beating, not the suffering servant. The biggest sin was their non recognition of him. And it was hard to see it because it was plainly disclosed in the Torah. And they hung their hats on the Torah, you see. And it was not plainly disclosed. In hindsight, we can see it in the Torah now. But if it was difficult for them to see it in the Torah, they yeah. got their hats on the Torah. Yeah. So it was that blindness in part that was the biggest sin, I think. That was my revelation, I think. Yeah, right you are, Bernice. Thank you. Uh, Rochelle, I still see your hand. Anything else? Um. Oh, no, I just wanted to 
to make a connection with I think last week's uh, teaching when Tom was was saying how um, how uh, Christianity has made uh, uh, has turned the the message of the cross um, a PhD where they've kept us into just talking about the cross, the cross, the cross, and not you know talk about everything else which was you know um okay once you're saved once you're in the in the kingdom what what do we do you know and and the and the teachings of messiah constantly focus on the kingdom of yah the kingdom of yah the kingdom it's like you know you have that bridge okay we're we're coming into the kingdom of yah but then what happens once we're in the kingdom you know and and i think tom was saying you know let us we've we've mastered uh, that one uh, small aspect of teaching and, and have become, you know, PhD in, in, in elementary school <laughs> and, and, you know, and been stuck there. And that's what it is. I mean, if you visit any kind of church, that's what they, that's constantly what, what they, what they focus on. And I know Linda is, is, is gone now, but uh, one of the teachings that she sent through, um, in the chat, it, it's a, uh, it's a, it's a guy that I used to follow. Well, not really follow, but his name is John Bevere. And the teaching talks about being driven by eternity. And he talks about, you know, um, we focus so much on getting into the kingdom, but we forget we're going to go through and stand before the judgment seat of Christ. And we're going to have to, to present what it is that we've done right and 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 uh it's very clear that um you know he is the builder and he's building a city a city called zion right and we are we are we are uh the stones in 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 this huge building but we have to bring like what are we bringing right and and we're built we have to build this city according to his instructions just like just like he gave the instructions to moshe he said you know build me a dwelling place according to what i've shown you according to the pattern that i i've shown you on the mountain right and and he's given us the, this this glimpse which is torah and uh not, you know yeah so anyway i don't know where i was going with that but yeah mm-hmm. <laughs> thank you that's a good a good wind up for us a good ending for us. Well, thank you all for your um, your input, your insights, your uh, your instructions, Jan's instructions. Uh, learned a lot from everyone today, and really, really enjoyed this session. Thank you so much for your input. But it's time for us to close up now. Bernice is going to close us off with prayer. I hope we still have a good uh, connection going there. Um, and I only have one um, person to pray for: Linda's daughter. A broken ankle or a broken leg, I think it was. And yeah. Linda has already left, but I know she did okay. send the message for her yeah. daughter. Yeah, oh, so any other prayer requests? Any other prayer requests for Bernice? For, family. For, for Bill's family. What? Bill is now passed. But for Bill's family. I didn't get the name. I didn't get the name. Her neighbor's family. I- Neighbors, Judith's neighbors, family. It's Bill's family, or yes, yes, they had a death in the family. Okay. Uh, Bernice, I don't know if you can hear me, but if you could pray for 
Hoya's will to be made clear. Um, I think I have a lot of decisions to make, and and I need uh, I need uh, to hear him clearly. Um, so yeah, just to to keep me in prayer in that, you know, job wise, relationship wise, you know, moving, <laughs> so many decisions. Okay. Thank you. Um, yes, can you please pray for Duvar and Claudia? Okay. And pray for Usley. She's been having lower back pain for maybe three weeks now. Usley? Yeah, Usley, Joanna's yeah. sister from Haiti. Yeah, yeah that comes Usley. on. Usley. Yeah. Okay, any other prayer requests? No other prayer requests? Then um, I'll just play one final song and then Bernice will pray for us. Place for your glory to dwell. 
you, Abba. Thank you, Father. Our Father in heaven, blessed be your name. Holy is your name. Father, we thank you, O oh God, for who you are. Father, we thank you for your mercy. We thank you for that you are slow to anger. We thank you that you are long-suffering. thank you that you are merciful and kind and gentle, O oh God. Father, we thank you that you are gracious towards us. Father, that you were so gracious you sent your son to provide a way for us to come directly to you with our concerns, O oh God. Father, we thank you that you have allowed us to come to the mercy seat ourselves and to ask for mercy. And Father, we thank you that your word says, ask and you will find. Father, we thank you that you have given us the opportunity, oh God, to bring all our cares to you because you said that you are our burden bearer from God. You sent your son, Yeshua, to bear those burdens for us on the cross, to provide that way to you, O oh God, and we thank you. And Lord, we thank you that we can come to you directly. Because Lord, right now, our sisters and brothers have so many needs, Lord God. And Father, we bring them all to you. And we ask for your kindness, your mercy, and your generosity towards us, O oh God, because that is your very nature. It's amongst the attributes, the 13 attributes, O oh God, that you showed to Moses when you passed in front of him, O oh God. And Father, for that, we thank you. So we bring Linda's daughter to you, O oh God, who has a broken leg at this moment through an accident, O oh God. And we ask for quick healing, O oh God. Father, and that this is not a break that is not irreparable, that you, oh God, will touch on it, and that you will bring it back to its pristine state, that state that you had developed in her before the accident. Lord, we thank you for what you're going to do in your life. Father, we bring Judith's uh, neighbor's family to you, oh God, they just had a death. And Father, you said, your son said that he came to heal the brokenhearted. And he is always right at the side of the brokenhearted. Lord, as they turn to him, O oh God, he will, O oh God, pour his love and compassion upon them, O oh God. And Father, during this time of mourning, O oh God, that it will be a time of drawing closer to you on their behalf, O oh God. Father, draw them by your Holy Spirit close to your side, O oh God. And that we thank you for in Jesus' name, in Yeshua's name, Father. Father, we bring usually uh, to you, O oh God. Father, she is suffering from lower back pain, O oh God. Precious Lord, touch that back even now, O oh God. And heal it, O oh God, in the name of Jesus. That that pain, O oh God, will disappear, O oh God. And that back will be enabled to, to function in the way you intended it to function. Father, oh God, we are asking you, oh God, we bring Joe and Claudia to you today, oh God. We bring our leaders to you, oh God, as we do bring our leaders every day to you in our prayers, oh God. 
day, Lord God, we just ask, oh God, that you will pour fresh anointing upon them, that you would lead and guide them. Yes, Lord, that you will lift them up, oh God, that you will anoint them up, Lord. Father, we ask these things in the name of Yeshua. And because you said, come and bring your bring your request to me, oh God. And Father, we are asking, oh Lord God, that you will make clear, oh God, for my sister, oh God, who is asking for your clarity in decision-making, oh God, that your will will be done in her life. Father, in all the relationships established, oh God, Precious Lord, I just ask, oh God, to give her the strength to wait on the one you are bringing to her, oh God. Because, Father, we know that you have one prepared for her. Oh God, Father, she she wants to live the way you want her to live. She wants to be obedient. Her desire is to be obedient to your laws and to your will and to your wishes, oh God. And, Father, I'm just asking for the strength in her to accomplish that, oh God. But, Lord... Most of all, Lord, I am asking for the husband for her that you have prepared. Because we know that you have one in the wings waiting, prepared for her, oh God. Father, we ask in Lord God, that you will bring forward that meat for her. Because Lord, you have said, you have said that man and woman belong to each other in this way and in only one way. And you provided a helpmate for Adam and you brought Eve to him. Oh God's Lord, I know that you will bring her Adam to her in time to come. Father, we thank you for all you're doing. But most of all, oh God, today, we want to bring Israel to you, oh God, your land, your place. Jerusalem, the place that you have put your name upon, oh God. Father, today we pray for the peace of Jerusalem, oh God. Father, we need to know that the, the different nations that you have allowed to settle in that land, that they live harmoniously together, oh God. Father, that peace will come, oh God. Father, we know that that peace can only come through you. We notice that there have been changes in leadership, oh God. And we just pray for the leaders, oh God. Father, that you are establishing, oh God, the steps towards establishing your kingdom there. There is only one leader, Messiah Yeshua for Israel, oh God, and for Jerusalem. Father, but in the meantime, oh God, those that you have placed as caretakers, oh God, he has your guidance upon their lives, oh God. And we pray, oh God, for the peace of Jerusalem. And for the land that you have established as your father, we look forward to the messianic kingdom, O God, being established there in the name of Yeshua, in no other name but his name. Father, thank you, O God, for hearing our prayers today. And Lord, we rest it with you in his name, only his name, the name of Yeshua, our Messiah, who has come to give us this peace and this reconciliation with you. And we thank you in Yeshua's name. Amen. 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 Thank you, Bernice. And now may the Most High bless us with all good. 
May the Elohim of Yaakov preserve us from all evil. May he lighten our hearts with life-giving wisdom, knowledge, and understanding. And may he grant us eternal peace and raise his merciful face towards us for everlasting bliss. In Yeshua's name we ask. Amen. Amen. Well, Shavuot Tov, everyone. Shavuot Tov. Shavuot Tov. Bye, Richard. Bye, everyone. Bye, Angela. Bye, everyone. Bye, everyone. Bye, Shelly. Bye, everyone. Jay, is that you? When do you go to Israel? We have a brother that's going to the land soon. Oh. Jay, is it you? Yeah, how are you? That's on? You're muted. Is that Herman's yeah, friend? I think it's Herman's friend. Is that Herman's friend? Is it or is it um Philip um Philip? Philip Thomas. Herman's friend. Oh, that's Herman's friend. He's just Herman's saying. friend. Okay, all right. Yeah. How is Lloyd? We didn't see Lloyd today. Probably oh, went busy. to synagogue. Yeah, Lloyd's okay. busy. Yeah, we'll, we'll see. Yeah, you know? yeah, we'll see him from time to time. But uh, yeah. he's a little busy. I think he was on early and then he left. Okay. Right? Yeah. yeah. I think I saw his name and I came in. All right. Okay, folks. Okay, okay. I see you in a, in a bit. Do Claudia. Okay. Uh, Rachel, okay. I might give Rachel, I might give you a call. Okay. <laughs> And Herman, I will. I have to. You, you know what, Shelly? I was just about to say, and then say, I'm gonna call you. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And Herman, something you'd ask me about, and I have to get in touch with you as well. Bye, everyone. Okay, Shelly. And, and Joanna as well. I know. Bye. 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 Joanna. Take care, Richard. All right. Bye, Bernice. Thank Bye, Bernice. Bye, Bernice. Thank you, Bernice. Bye. Bye, Everall. <laughs> Bye, Richard. Bye, Carolyn. Goodbye. God bless you all. God bless. You too, Richard. Bye, Dawn. Bye, Vera. Bye, Dawn and Vera. Shalom. Shalom. Bye. Okay, ending the meeting.
Okay. 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 Okay.